the Jericho Network on Westwood One. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to another episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn here on Westwood One. Joining me on this episode from the band Sticks. It is singer-songwriter Dennis D. Young. On the other side of that, we have got James Kotak, who has spent who spent many, many years with the Scorpions. Now he is rebooting Kingdom Come. And then after that, we are going to talk to Cher Ross of the band Vixen. It is going to be a long, long episode. So hunker down, folks. It is going to be well, well worth it, especially, especially Dennis. Great stories coming out of that. But to get us all started on the phone, my co-host this week from, yes, from Kingdom Come, it is singer Keith St. John. Keith, always, always a pleasure to talk to you and uh, very exciting news that you and James are getting together to reboot Kingdom Come. Yeah, man. It's a long time coming. I've known James for a long time and we have yet to play in a band together. So this is going to be really, really cool. Really cool. He's a great friend. And uh, I love his playing style, always have. Um, we have connections from, from the distant past, so it's like another full circle deal. It is. So, so I know a little bit about some of your background. So, so I think you met James back in the day when C.C. DeVille first left Poison. Am I, am I wrong there? What was going on with that situation with C.C., James Kotak, and Keith St. John? You know, in the words... Straight out of a Martin Scorsese movie, you know things. I don't know how you heard that, but yes, that is absolutely true. We met uh, when I was a fresh pup out on the Sunset Strip. I had my own band and demos and record companies chasing us, and that was the whole scene back then. And uh, CC was starting a band. James was part of it, as well as a few other people that I know. Adam Hamilton, by any chance? Excuse me? Was Adam Hamilton part of that, too? Because I know Adam Hamilton, who, who now plays with L.A. Guns, he used to hang out with CC back in those days. He's told me many stories of debauchery and late nights. But what was Oh, he? gosh. Yes. Yeah, that's a 24-hour. You know, CC's house was like 7-Eleven, I think. It does not close. The lights stay on. <laughs> right, except, and, they, uh, except no, they weren't um, selling slushies or whatever. They were selling a little harder stuff. But, yeah, go on. Uh, Tell well, me. the funny thing is, is I, you know, I got to the house, James called me, and he called me for a few things before, but I had never met him. This is the first time meeting him. I went up to CC's. They were set up in the bedroom, what was what should have been a bedroom, but it was just a room piled with two feet of messed up cables on the floor that you kind of had to stand on chairs almost to even maneuver in there. Anyway, I came in the room, and lo and behold, there's James on drums and CC, and, um, and this... Also, this awesome bass player named Tommy Hendrickson. I don't know if you're familiar. Tommy was in the Long Island bass rough cut, R-U-F-F-K-U-T, and now he's playing guitar in Alice Cooper's band. I know, and one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. Tommy has been so nice to me over the years. Uh, I mean, honestly, and such a talent. He can play any instrument. He can produce. He can sing. Dude dude is awesome. Tommy is great. He's amazing. I still remember some of Tommy's original tunes that was the first band i ever saw in a club was tommy's band and they played some of their tunes and i was like so this is heavy metal (laughs) and uh you know it hasn't been uh you know my ears haven't come so far from them 
And here we were then. That was over 20 years ago. Over 20 years ago. So, yeah. So we'll 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 talk about Kingdom Come in the second part. But let me just quickly move on here to our first. Well, well, let me say one more thing. One more thing that's interesting. All right. I spent, as you know, about 12 to 13 years touring with Ronnie Montrose in what was the new Montrose when he finally fired it up again. Yes. And I had never known with all my years uh, with James back in the early days doing things and, you know, jamming on this and that. uh, I never knew he had a connection with Ronnie as well. Then I come to find out he played and co-wrote songs on the fifth Montrose album with Ronnie. So this past year was his first time coming down to Ronnie Montrose Remembered. And as James always is, it was absolutely fabulous. And it was so cool to have him there and just kick off Rock the Nation first song, first record um, in total James Kotek style, which just, you know, leaves leaves no prisoners or takes no prisoners, whatever the saying is. So I just wanted to say that. And, you know, James and I seem to just have these endless connections. And now it's really cool that we're going to jam in a band together. So. Yeah, I, I can't wait to see that, by the way. And and I'll, I'll throw this out there. When you look at a festival like M3 that, that deals with a lot of these heritage acts and these acts from back in the day, now that Kingdom Come is back together, they would be the perfect band to invite on that bill next year. Now, I, I have no connections it's to the festival. It's fresh meat. It is. Absolutely. I thought it would be These guys so haven't been nice. together for 30 years. Yeah, so let's... Now, fingers crossed and, and all those different rock cruises, it, it, it's, it's, you know, we love all the other bands that, that they keep bringing back. But this, like you said, fresh meat, and I'm, I'm all down for that. Now, let's quickly turn our attention to uh, Dennis D. Young. You are a vocalist, and Dennis D. Young is one of these performers. I mean, he, he's got the voice. He's a showman. He, he's, he's got that, that, that those songs are ingrained in, in your head, in your brain, the, the songwriting. Uh, everything um, for you. Are you a Dennis D. Young fan? Huge, huge yeah. Dennis D. Young fan. I mean, Dennis is ingrained in what I consider rock and music history. Growing up on classical music and then kind of um, melding into the hard rock world, you know, I grew up with my parents' albums, which were the Beatles and, you know, a lot of art rock, yes, and whatnot. And Dennis figured out a way to bring his songwriting and the keyboard sounds into a rock environment that kind of changed the canvas in a lot of ways. And I liken Dennis's writing to somewhere, you know, on the level of Paul McCartney and that level. You know, I I really revere his writing. And another thing is, as you said, he's such a great showman. Uh, I recently went to a Dennis DeYoung show, coincidentally, and... I walked in the room and I said to myself, man, Dennis doesn't even have to play music. If he didn't play music at all and wasn't even in a band, he could stand up on the stage and just talk and keep everybody engaged for two hours and they wouldn't move and they would probably still cheer just as much as they cheer because he's such a great talker and a great host and a great showman. He's a great writer and a beautiful singer. Um, In fact, I was always a big fan of Andrew Lloyd Webber and Superstar because I grew up in New York around Broadway and I got exposed to all that at a young age. And um, sometime after moving to L.A., I caught Dennis in the touring version of Superstar 
And he was the star. I loved yeah, it. Yeah, wasn't that it was great. really great? So I mean, Dennis, Dennis has a great career. He's expanded in so many really cool directions, and um, you know, I yeah. think that the legend of a lot of his music will remain in the rock and roll bible forever. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, you look at some of the stuff he's done, uh, even uh, Mr. Roboto and and all those other songs. They they just are part of Americana. You cannot think of American music and not point out these different stick songs. And then you go, oh, wow, but he wrote them. He wrote songs that are going to be remembered 500 years down the road. So, you know, much appreciation for Dennis. So let's get over to the interview. Here is the one, the only singer, songwriter, and American rock and roll icon, the one, the only Dennis DeYoung. We are speaking with singer Dennis DeYoung. Dennis, a great pleasure to talk to you. This is, in fact, our first time ever doing this, and uh, just absolutely wonderful. Well, I'm, 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 glad, I'm glad you didn't pick somebody that you really hated. <laughs> Wouldn't that be so? But you know what? Sometimes in this business, you do have to talk to people that you don't like as much, and you have to be professional and go for it. But uh, for you, though, I have a sincere appreciation. So... Let's start off with the Grand Illusion Tour. You have been out doing these shows where you present the Grand Illusion uh, in full, the 40th anniversary. Uh, Talk to me about putting that show together and presenting the album and just what the album has meant for you professionally and for the band Sticks. Well, simply put, it was coming upon the 7th of July last year when it dawned on me, and I hadn't been thinking about it, uh, that it was going to be the 40th anniversary of the Grand Illusion album, and I had a uh, a date booked in the Chicagoland area to play a theater called the uh, the Arcata Theater, which I'd played before. And I said, you know what? I called my manager and I said, why don't I just put together? I'll get with the band, and because we're playing. Um, we're playing a lot of songs. We play three songs from it. We'll just learn the rest of them. And it was really cemented in my mind when I realized that Jimmy Leahy, one of my guitar players, could could do a dead-on impression of James Young, something he kept hidden from me for 12 years. I didn't even know he could do that. And I said, look, we, you know, I got a guy who really does Tommy great, August Zadra. Uh, but, you know, you needed uh, somebody to sing Miss America. And then we, we worked it out in a, in a rehearsal one day, and then I, I went up and slapped him. I said, why didn't you tell me you could do that? No, I didn't slap him. So it was kind of cemented in that we could probably pull that off. So we did. We learned all the songs, and we, we, you know, we dressed it up a little you know, here and there. We put some lipstick on it, like, you know, there's, there, hey, look, there's the Grand Illusion album, you know, projection, that kind of stuff. And it, uh, it, it not only sold out really quick, but... The, the palpable enthusiasm, which just really stunned me by the audience, um, was something I hadn't really counted on or predicted. It just, I walked in and there was like a buzz, you know, but listen, people are always relatively excited to see you. You know, they paid dough, you know, they, they want to come back and relive those memories. But there was something different in the air, Mitch. And I thought, wow, what is going on here? So um, we did it. And uh, then I started talking to my manager, and he said, you want to try it again? And then we did. We put a couple, I think we put two or three, as they say in Chicago, two or three more on sale. And then the same thing happened where the ticket sales were through the roof. And the enthusiasm was, 
inexplicable to me. So we did it because I've never been a fan of playing entire albums because I always thought, well, you know, there's going to be a couple tracks on there that you go, but we really need to play that one because, you know, we're not the Beatles after all. Every track is not, you know, they're all capable and competent, but some are, you know, clearly better than others. So we did it and I was surprised by it. And so then the idea was floated to our, our agency, William Morris. What do you think? Well, you know, because this is, it all comes down to who's willing to spend money uh, to uh, promote you doing anything, you know, whether it's, you know, a, a blowing up balloons at a carnival or playing your songs. So they said, yeah, they were in. So we put, I think it's 20 or 25 shows. And, you know, we've been doing that. And the response has been, once again, uh, uh, not being a dead horse, but I might be beyond that at this point. It's It's a puzzlement to me. They like it. They love it, in fact. It's such a, a great presentation, and of course, it's coming to uh, Brampton, Ontario in October, and hopefully it'll come back to Montreal. I think I think it passed by, didn't it? Or, or did it No, we by? haven't been up there in, um, I think, almost three years, and I'm, you know, I mentioned <laughs> to come back up there, uh, and we'll be back, but I played, listen, I played, I played everywhere in Quebec, you know what I mean? Uh, for the, for a number, for almost ten years, and the last time I played up there, I did fifteen sold out shows in Quebec City at a place called the Capitol. I'm sure you know that place, of course. And and I thought, man, that's a lot. <laughs> you know, that's a lot. Of, we played a lot of. I just wanted to. We both felt we should let, you know, rather than show up at somebody's doorstep every twenty five minutes and say it's me again, we thought we'd let it, you know, calm down a bit. And so, but I'm anxious to go back up there because the people in Quebec. They're the best in the world. Uh, they, they 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 have such a, um, a lust for life. They love music. They love entertainment. They love having good good time. You know, and that's it's it's it, the French Canadian culture is um, one that uh, has embraced me, and I've uh, I've returned the uh, re- returned the favor. Yeah. So okay. So 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 let me explore that. Since since I'm based out of Montreal. Uh, I just saw the band Sticks here on July 3rd, and they put in Sweet Madam Blue in the set list, which they hadn't been doing on the American dates. And they said they had to play it up here. They had to play it in Toronto because that song has this special. Uh, talk to me about how the album Equinox and the song Sweet Madam Blue took off here and your relationship with, with Quebec and Canada in general, not just for yourself, but for Sticks, there was something about that band, and it seems that different bands have these different territories. You look at Cheap Trick, and something about Japan and Cheap Trick just, it was, you know, made to be. But there was something about Canada, and especially Quebec and Montreal, for Dennis DeYoung and Sticks that was made to be. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it starts with this love for Sweet Madam Blue. Here's here's my take. In 1975, after we released the album, I was asked to go to Toronto by AM Canada, which at the time was, you know, they were the very best record company in Canada. That's just it. They're the best. And they wanted me to come up there and do some press by myself. So I, I flew up. And you have to understand, we had made, this was our fifth album. And really our our success had been based on Primarily, Lady. That's it. The other four wooden nickel albums were you know, essentially meaningless. So we were everybody's brides, bridesmaid, uh, Mitch. We were we were never getting married. We were going to be the band that was backing up, uh, you know, Aerosmith and Kiss and whoever in Boston forever. It felt like, and we recorded Equinox. And so I go up there, 
And uh, the promo guy says, tomorrow we have a press conference set up for you. And I thought, what am I, a world leader? What do you mean a press conference? I've never done a press conference in my life. And uh, I think they thought maybe I was going to go up there and solve the Mideast problem, but no. So I, I walk into this room in this hotel, and there are, there are all these people, these writers, and, and, and like a, you know, a, a TV camera, and they want to talk to me. I'm thinking to myself, I keep looking over my shoulder to see if you know, Robert Plant had walked into the room. I didn't know what was going on. And sure enough, they wanted to talk about Equinox, like I mattered. And um, I was uh, certainly unaccustomed to that kind of treatment. So I came home and I, I told the guys, I says, I don't know what this is, but something, something is palpable in Canada. I don't know what the heck it is, but they, they, they seem to have me confused with rock stars. So we got booked a couple shows to go up there and play with Bad Company. One was at uh, the Maple Leaf Gardens. And the other one was at the Forum. We're going to back up Bad Company. And we were a great live band by this point. I mean, I'm not kidding you. I can say this with all modesty. We were just kick-ass. So we go up there, and we we're at a basic, essentially a sold-out show in the gardens, and we do our thing. Well, it was stunning to a lot of people who, you know, there's nothing better in life than low expectations. You know, they don't expect nothing from you, and you give them everything. They are like, you know, doubly overjoyed by the experience. And so we march off over to um, the forum. Well, we go into the forum, and we're playing, and the people are mental from the get-go, and then we play Sweet Madam Blue. And the whole place stands up and starts singing the song back to me while I'm singing, like, you know, I'm at a soccer match. So I'm going, what in the hell is this? And so from that moment, the love affair began with Sticks in Quebec and Canada to a lesser degree, but certainly in Quebec. And what do I attribute to this? I don't know. If I could bow it, I would. I would have it. I would carry it on my belt and go over and sprinkle on every city I go into. But up there, for some unknown reason, and here's what I attribute it to. I think the music business is called that for a very important reason. Because I, I sometimes think it should be called the business music. Because the business, so many times, is more important than the music that's being created. Too many times. By which I mean, without the proper promotion and exposure by a record company through the press, through what radio, whatever, your music can go virtually unnoticed because it's the tree falling in, in the forest. And in Montreal, as you probably know, Shom, they were it, baby. They were the kings of the walk and A&M was the best record company. Those two, two things came together and they started playing Equinox on Shome and Sweet Man in Blue in particular. And whether they thought, you know, I think that my singing style, see, the, the Quebecers, they love singers. They love, you know, real legit kind of rock singers. And they love melody. And Sweet Man in Blue had all that, 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 that in there for them. And the fact that it's a Sweet Madam Blue it has, it can have a French connotation to people if they choose. And
And additionally, you want to hear a crazy story? It was being spread, somehow the rumor spread that this was about, Sweet Man in Blue was about a, um, a French prostitute, a Quebecer prostitute. I don't know where such stories spring from. I have no idea. But um, there you go. And, and the love of her began, and it never ended for us there. They just, they loved everything we did. And um, listen, they're not alone because the world embraced us. They were, but they were the first. Oh yeah, we we really were. So you talk about you were sort of destined to be this band opening up for Kiss, and 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 there was a you know maybe a, a lack of respect, and the wooden uh, nickel albums didn't do what. Um, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has continued to ignore Sticks. Um, why do you think that the band hasn't gotten the respect? And when you look at bands like REO Speedwagon and, and Journey, with these, these massive selling bands with 40-plus year careers, and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame goes, yeah, so what? Well, I used to think, and I've written about it many times, that, let's face it, that's Jan Winner's thing. That's his play thing. He, 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 he deserves that right. He raised the money. He got the thing started. Jan Winner, for those of you who don't know, was the editor and the publisher of Rolling Stone magazine, which was in many in many cases the um, arbiter of rock critical taste in this in this uh, in this country for many years, and they tended after they put in the people they could not ignore, like the people who invented all this music, they tended to put in there um, musicians that they preferred that came from this particular point of view about what rock, what really validates and legitimizes rock music. Uh, something that I've always disagreed with personally, and millions of other have as well. So I always thought, well, bands like us and Journey, to name two, we're going to have a really tough time if ever of getting in. Now that's changed in the last five or six years. They've had to break down and start allowing people who were dare I say, mainstream successful. And by mainstream, I mean simply a lot, of, a lot of cats and chicks dug the music and it lasted a long time. Um, they've res they, they have still resisted uh, uh, some people who I think deservedly belong. But they could have solved all, that pro all their problems if they'd have simply called it the Contemporary Music Hall of Fame. The minute you use the word rock, Mitch, you're in an argument with every MOOC Every mamaluke on the planet who has an who defines it in their own manner, they're going to say to you, "No, no, that's not wrong." Shut up! Who cares? It's music to me. You know what I mean? It's almost like it's like a club, or a, uh, becomes a, a political action com uh, committee, or or a political party where I belong to this team and that team sucks. You know, it's idiotic to me. It's just is the music good or bad? Because there's only two kinds of music in the world: it's the kind you like and the kind you don't. Nothing else matters to people. So. But they knew if they called it the, the music, um, contemporary music, it wouldn't have the cachet. Oh, we're rock stars. Everybody rock on. We're this, we're that. You know, there's this um, expectation of the cool that's, that's related to rock, or at least traditionally it had been that way. I don't know if it's that way anymore. I think rock is dead. It's been dead for 10 years. There's just, nobody's mentioned it to them. There's no forum for it anymore on radio. And so pop is king. So this has happened. You know, a, a vacuum was created. Pop music ran in there. And they took it over. But getting back to the original thing, 
do we belong in there? How the hell do I know? I don't know if anybody belongs in there. You tell me certain people certainly do belong, but you're going to get in an argument with people because the minute you start subcategorizing music into this genre, that genre, and, and, and really music is turned into a, a niche like everything else in our culture that's going to try to appeal to a very specific audience to sell a product. And the minute you get into doing that, rather than looking at it objectively and saying, well, this did that and that did this, I think you're always going to have people arguing about what belongs in there and what doesn't belong in there. So it has heretofore been run by Jan Winter, but I think they've had to come to grips with it. They've gotten pretty much all of their favorites in there now, whether deservedly or not, which is an argument they can go on forever. And so a lot of these people, our contemporaries, Cheap Trick that you mentioned in Journey and Steve Miller in Chicago and Hart and um, who are they? There's, there's all kinds, right? They put Deep Purple in. They probably put Yes in, for God's sake. Um, you know, so they put Rush in before Yes, and I thought to myself, you know, Getty Lee knows for sure that there would be no rush without yes. He knows that. And um, between him and Alex, they, you know, I always said, you know, rush was when, uh, you know, if, if, if yes and Led Zeppelin had a baby, it would have been rush. So it, it's an odd situation. But as far as us getting in, I don't know. I Listen, you want to belong. You want to be part of that. You know, we, we never did this not to be liked or appreciated or respected. The whole idea was that, for goodness sake. So we'd love to be in. Whether or not we get invited or not, it's it's totally out of my hands. Yeah, and I, and I certainly hope it happens soon. I mean, Journey, of course, got in, but it, it, it was like pulling teeth, and, and it was almost like they were resistant. But uh, you mentioned team, and, and you've mentioned team in the past where you said you like being on a team, and you've never wanted to be a solo artist. You're going on to, what, 20 years now as a solo artist? Talk to me about that and, and you know, wanting to be part of a band and, you know, being away from sticks for you. How has that been? Man overboard! Man over! Um, let me think. Um, <clears throat> look, it's such a long and convoluted story. We... Let me see if I can crystallize this because it's like a seven-hour uh, question to answer. What was the? How did you phrase the question specifically? Well, let me let me try to answer it directly without going into some some long tirade. Well, you just you you have in the past have been quoted as saying, "I never wanted to be a solo artist. Still don't. I like being on a team." And now you're going on to your twentieth year. It's coming up of being a pure, pure solo artist. Obviously, you've done stuff in the 80s and stuff, but really, uh, there was... So just talk to me a little bit about the fact that you're no longer in sticks. and... Okay, you... I got it. Good right. question, uh, Mitch. Um, here, here's how I'd answer. We had a run that was remarkable from 75 to 83, which included a double platinum at Equinox, platinum for Crystal Ball, and then four triple platinums in a row. That tells you one thing. We had a loyal fan base. Sold out shows for six continual years. And then I came up with the idea with, with, of Kilroy was here, trying to push the envelope, do something different, trying to get us on film, which was my idea in 1982. Not, a, not even knowing that MTV was going to come along, there would be a video, a video revolution. I just thought, hey, the Beatles, the Who, Pink Floyd, get on film. This is a good thing. <clears throat> Um, 
we, so we did that project. And during uh, somewhere in the middle of the tour, Tommy Shaw <clears throat> um, quit the band. So uh, when he did that, it surprised us all. We knew that Tommy was battling his demons with uh, drugs and alcohol. It had been, um, he has long since, um, by his own by his own words, have ex- expressed what happened to him. He, he was not alone in this. Many people, this happened to a lot of people. But in that haze, uh, his judgment was impaired. And he quit one of the most successful American rock and roll bands to pursue a solo career. So the four of us were standing there. J.Y., myself, John, and Chuck. Stunned, not knowing what to make of it. And the other three guys said they were so enraged, so angry with Tommy, <clears throat> they wanted to replace him. They wanted me to say, let's get it. We'll just get another guy and we'll carry on. And I thought to myself, that is not very self-aware of how this machine works and what makes the steam engine blow the steam off. So I said that was a bad idea. We have spent the last seven years convincing people that these five guys are who they should like above the other four or five guys and all these other bands who are trying to do the same thing, get your attention. So I said, no, I don't want to do that. Knowing full well that Tommy and I were the creative forces behind the band from Crystal Wall forward. This did not make them happy. So Tommy had, during the Kilroy tour, unbeknownst to us, had been planning his solo career, going around to radio stations and doing some self-promotion all during the tour. And he had talked to A&M about doing a solo album. And so when I found out about this, I thought, well, I'm not just going to stand here with my hat in my hand. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do something. And I realized my contract said that A&M had right of first refusal of any solo projects I did. Something I never looked at or cared about in my contract because I was in sticks, baby. Mitch, I wanted to be in the Beatles. They never called. So I had to form my own band. Being in a band and being on a team is great. They pick you up when you're down and you do the same for them. And the sound and the talent that comes together to create those sticks albums is unique. Take all the parts, replace them with other parts and you find something changes and not always for the better. What you get is something competent and capable, but what the five guys did when they came together, these five, you know, mamalukes, they, they created something unique. Um, that's just it. If you look at the Rolling Stones and you take them out and you separate them out, you think, well, when they come together, they do something. It's true of every band. I did not want to go on without Tommy. So I made my first solo album. If you go back and look at the reviews, not the reviews, I'm sorry, the interviews, I said the same thing. I'm I'm a reluctant solo artist. I thought Tommy would do a solo album, get it out of system and come back. He didn't until all three of his options were used up. That's when he called me in late 1987. And J.Y. called me every year, sometimes twice a year, and asked me, 
the question, are you ready to replace Tommy? And I said, no, it's not going to change. I believed, Mitch, and still believe the magic was when we were together. So becoming a solo artist is nothing I ever aspired to. I don't want to be a solo artist. I want to be in sticks. And, 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 and who does? Okay, so, so let me ask you about Tommy, and, and here's my problem with this interview, is that every question I ask you, there's about 25 I'm not asking you, so I'll, I'll, how can I put this? Because I don't want to sound derogatory, but, but he is a, a replacement uh, player in Sticks. He came in and replaced John uh, Kuraleski. Uh, uh, may he rest in peace. Uh, but why did he become so important to the band? You had made many albums before him, and he came in and... and took over why did he become so central to what sticks does and does does it bother you that here you are an originator of the band the, the the founding member and they're going on without you and somebody who came in sort of five albums in has all this sway and all this power in the band I mean, I know you don't know. His name was John Sirleski. Sirleski, yeah, sorry. I've always had a difficulty saying that. My, my apologies. We made, of the first five albums, we made one good one, six two, and one great one, in my opinion, in Equinox. That was done without Tommy. But <clears throat> we still hadn't brought, broke through. Equinox was released, and almost immediately, J.C., he quit the band, didn't want to be on the road. Enter Tommy Shaw. And we continued just to tour live, supporting Equinox. Tommy was in the band when we came up to uh, Canada. So what happened was, even though the music on Equinox was terrific, the Canadians made us stars in, in Canada, but the Americans did not. So we brought Tommy into the band. And Tommy was never a proggy guy at all. He's, his, his strength is that acoustic guitar. In fact, the song he played uh, f for us during the audition from his tapes of all his songs was Crystal Ball without the big hook and without all the artsy-fartsy stuff that we put in later. So Crystal Ball was like a, an album where we were trying to bring uh, Tommy into the band as a writer and a performer. And it was my idea, no one else's, to make the title of the album Crystal Ball and put Tommy out front on it with the first thing with Mademoiselle, a song that he and I co-wrote. Because I thought in my mind that Tommy was the missing part to make us what I considered a very, would make us a very successful band. I was always in favor of make him in, you know, put him in the center of the stage. That would look, all those ideas were mine. Stick him in the front. This guy's got something. Okay. And all boats rise with the tide. So, <clears throat> but it was a double-edged sword. As good as Tommy was for the band. He was great. There was, you know, uh, problems did develop like they develop in every band. So the first, I think, fracture came when out of, out of the clear blue sky, after Babe being a number one single, A&M wanted a song called First Time on the Album to be the second single. They were convinced that it would be an, had a chance to be a num number, number one record, at least top five. Which, as you know, singles aren't, aren't, aren't the end all to anybody's career, but they're calling cards to, to drive people into the record stores to buy albums, which is what we were, an album-selling group. But those singles are vital, particularly for a band like us. So 
we were on hiatus and I got the call from the manager at the time he said he would quit the band if it was released. So that was fracture number one. And the next major fracture came when he, he quit the band during Kilroy and stopping our momentum. My, my belief is that after Kilroy, if we'd have done what was planned, because I'd promised JY, if he supported me on the Kilroy tour, we would do a stadium tour the next year, stadium, outdoor stadium, playing the greatest hits and do a live album. And I said, I, that's what we're going to do. Tommy quit. We couldn't do that tour. If we'd have run out that next year and done a stadium tour with somebody else in there other than Tommy Shaw, I believe it would have killed us. So I had to back down on my promise to J.Y. I think he was very angry. I know he was very angry with that. But I thought it was a mistake. So Tommy quits. After his three-record album deal is done, he... He calls me up and says he want, he'd like to put the band back together. Well, I had just signed a deal with MCA, <clears throat> not knowing Tommy was getting ready to come back to do a solo album, and I had recorded it. It was to come out in 88, and I said, as soon as the thing is released, okay, let's do it. Let's get back together. But I told him I had to wait. I couldn't start recording a Sticks album immediately because MCA had spent a a lot of money, Mitch, a lot of money to make this big fancy video for me and, and, and give me a great record deal. I said I owed him an opportunity to release that record without any conflict with what the Sticks Project would do. So then these people who were hired, not by me, by the record company, to do this fancy video for me, these Australians shot the video, everything's on time, then they took it to Australia because it was animated and held it for six months, putting my album back. In the interim, Tommy got an offer from John Kladner to be put together with Jack Blades from Night Ranger and Ted Nugent. He called me and told me what was going on. He wanted to make some demos. He said, what should he do? I said, Tommy, I can't stop you from doing it. I just have to wait till these, these people release this record. Um, he took the gig. He took the gig, and he was off doing Damn Yankees. But by that time, the other four of us said, I, I realized when he joined Damn Yankees that it was probably, <clears throat> not likely, that he was going to run back to six. And during, the very, and during the very same time, he sold back his rights to the name of Six for $5,000. So convinced he was that he was going to be in Damn Yankees. So when, when that happened, I, you know, we looked for a replacement. And we made the uh, Edge of the Century album. So, in 1995, A.M. is going to release a Greatest Hits package, finding for the first time a correct one, because they'd screwed it up a couple of times before by not calling what it was a, a Greatest Hits album. I got the idea of, we wanted to put Lady on it, but Wooden Nickel, the record company that we recorded it on, would not give us the rights to put the master, they wouldn't sell the master, to A&M to stick it on. So I got the uh, I got the bright idea of let's call up Tommy Shaw. He didn't perform on the original. We'll re-record it. Call Tommy Shaw. He said, sure. Came in, came to my house, in my studio, my house. Met, big hugs on the driveway. Got it all in videotape, still have it. Went in, recorded the song, 
The three of us stood around that microphone in my foyer where we recorded the vocals and magic occurred for the second time. And we're all standing around and then we went out to promote some of these things on TV to promote the greatest hits. And suddenly, that stick silent majority rose up and said, we want a tour. Promoters seeing it want a tour. We decided to tour. We toured successfully in 96 and 97 both. Wildly successful. In 1997, when we got together with our, the manager, Charlie Brusco at the time, who had been Tommy's manager, Charlie booked the tour. Charlie's plan was, and our plan was, to go back into the studio in 1997 and record a brand new six album, the first one since 83, with Tommy, with the original guys. And I had been working on a musical I had written since 1994 when Tommy was in Damn Yankees and tried my hand at writing music for the theater because I see myself as a songwriter. So we've been working on this project. My producers had invested $750,000 into this project. And before we got together at 19... 96 to do the tour, the premiere of this musical was slated for 1997, the fall. So we would, Charlie's idea was for us to record a, our first studio album in 97, which would allow me to do both the live, I'm sorry, the live, both the, um, the studio album and, and fulfill my commitment to my producers for the musical. After the 96 tour was over in the end of 97, Charlie called me up and said, um, well, I considered touring in 1997, doing some shows because Tommy had a cash flow problem. And I thought, Jesus, uh, what do we do about the studio one? He says, we'll postpone it. We'll release uh, the live DVD and live album. So in 97... We sat on the course. I think we played around 40 shows. I, I spent the whole year either on the road in New York, Nashville, where the premiere of the musical was, and I produced the entire live album with three new tracks. That was all done in 1997 between January and uh, November. I worked myself like a, like a maniac to do it. But what do you do? Your friend asks you for a favor, you do it. In, uh, in 98, I got I went out to uh, a funeral in Los Angeles. My wife's sister passed. And both of us got the flu. And um, my wife recovered in three weeks. It was a bad one. Um, so I, I couldn't get better, partner. I don't know what happened to me. I'd never had anything like it in my life. It was just devastated me. I was like, it was like I felt like I couldn't. You know, like, I, I, hey, listen, let's go get a drink of beer. I can't walk that far. You know, it was. I felt like I'd been depleted, didn't know what it was, spent months and months trying to talk to doctors and took, you know, they stuck it to above my nose, up my ass, everything. Couldn't figure out what happened to me. So everything went on hold in, in 98. And then the guy sent me some demos. Tommy had written some songs. They were, I thought they were fantastic. So I said, guys, let's try to record this this album 
uh, will work in my house, and when I when I feel exhausted, I'll go up to you know go up and lay down. So we started this endeavor of making Brave New World, and we were like two thirds of the way through, maybe more, and it was ninety nine, and we had a meeting, and Charlie Brusco came and he said he had a proposed tour to begin in the in um, early fall September some sometime, and I just realized uh, Mitch that. What, what had happened to me from the flu is I got what's called the post-viral symptoms. And, and, and this, my symptom was my eyes couldn't deal with light anymore properly. Something happened to my eyes from the high fever I'd gotten. But I realized if I wore sunglasses and really stayed out of bright light and, and stayed out of the sun, I started to feel better. And so I told the guys, I can't commit to a tour. Give me six more months. I'll have my strength back and we'll do it. And... Tom, Tommy said, it, it, he, he called me up and said, if we don't do a tour, I, I have no interest in finishing the album. I thought, Tommy, what are you talking about? We have an album we have a deal with, but this record company, they just put out our live album. It went gold, right? <clears throat> and uh, he, he just said no. And then the, the record company got wind of it. And they kind of forced their hand to go in and finish the album. But a great deal of animosity came out of that. Um, and the guys took the position that we had to take advantage of all the wonderful, successful things that were happening to us at, during that year. And here's what they were. Uh, starting with South Park. I got called up by Matt Stone <clears throat> and he and Trey wanted to put Use Come Sail Away in one of their episodes. So they told me what it was going to be, and I gave them permission. I didn't have to, but I thought it was funny. And then Adam Sandler came, <clears throat> and he wanted Babe in Best of Times for his, his, his movie Big Daddy. And I said yes, and he wanted, oh, and, and, and he wanted to use Blue Color Man. I said yes. And then VW came to me and asked me if we would do a re-record of Mr. Roboto for a VW commercial for Car Stereo. I saw the, the storyboard. I thought it was hysterical. And I said yes to all those things. So <clears throat> there was a huge resurrection of, um, of Sticks music. But do, do, do I need to mention that the songs that were really being featured were the ones I'd written and the ones I'd sung. And so JY made the case that we had to take advantage of it right now, as, like as we were a new band and our, our audience wasn't gonna wait, it could grief, they waited 13 years. We just had successful tours in 96 and 97. I, I thought they could wait six more months until I got better. <clears throat> Tommy and JY didn't like that idea. They said if I didn't show up, I, 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 in all fairness to JY, he offered me the opportunity to come and go, whatever my health um, allowed. But I just thought it was unconscionable for me to come in and out of the band. We stayed as a band strong. I, I tried to keep the band strong with Tommy, keep these guys together. And, and you just don't arbitrarily stick people in unless it's, in the case of John Panazzo, necessary. So um, I told him I just physically couldn't do it. I wanted to do it. I wanted to do it.
And, and, and then they, um, they proceeded to go off and tour, replaced me in the band. And, um, for a year and a half, people immediately said, you have to sue them and stop them. Well, I couldn't sue them because it was like suing myself. You know, sticks to me was me as much as it was anything. And I couldn't do it. And then they did the behind the music thing. And when I saw it, uh, my heart was broken. I, I couldn't understand why they went and did what they did. It was, it was, um, it was baffling to me. Right. So if this is dragging on too long, you asked me the question. It's not an easy question to answer. So there you go. I got, <clears throat> I got replaced. And remember at this time, when this happened, there were only three of us. Don't say the word sticks. It's disingenuous on their part and everyone's part. It was Tommy, J.Y., and me. Chuck retired because he was, he was fighting his, his, issues, his health issues, which were dead serious. Um, it was the three of us left. So Tommy, J.Y., replaced me. And it dawned on me, as my wife would say, you have need a house of bricks to fall on your head? They don't want you back in the band. And, and so after that, I realized they've been traveling around the road using the name and not compensating me with credit or money. And so I finally had to, I, I finally had no choice, but I had to, because they weren't going to respond to me, I had to take legal action to protect my interest in a band that I helped build. Does that answer your question? How long was that? 15 minutes? 15 minutes or so. So so let me look at the follow-up here. And the simple question is, is the animosity still there? Because when you look at interviews that JY does, it doesn't appear to be. He seems to sort of gloss it over or have some kind of a soft spot if you sort of read between the lines. Tommy, on the other hand, seems very um, dead set against any kind of reunion, any kind of openness. Uh, but on and, and listen, that's only my perception. They can both correct me if I'm wrong. Is there an animosity on on your end, or is it? Uh, come on, we're 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 all too old for this. Let's just enjoy life. Mitch, if you've done your homework, have you ever seen me say one time something bad about those guys? No, not at all. One time derogatory about the music we created? No. Did no. I single somebody's song out and say? Why did you write that? Nope. Never. Have you ever seen, and uh, I would like to correct you on JY. JY has been as vocal or more. If you say on, to Dan Rather, I was ill because I was working with Dennis DeYoung, and most recently that I had killed, I, by doing Kilroy, had killed the Golden Goose. Right. Right? And destroyed the fan base with Kilroy and Mr. Roboto. I, I, I would ask you what, to rethink what you just said about how JY feels. True. Um, the fact of the matter is, you asked me, do I? Is it aggravating that Tommy, who wasn't, you know, he didn't, he didn't re, uh, of those big albums, he didn't work on Edge of the Century or the first Five Sticks albums. And and I said, look, I said from the get go, I don't, I could forgive anybody. I just, I I belong in the band because the fans want it, and it should be that way. That's the magic. And 
people say, come on, we're too old. Those guys <clears throat> for 20 years have led a campaign to discredit me personally and professionally. And they've never given it up. Not even now when they've by all, listen, they're playing Mr. Roboto now, aren't they, Mitch? Yes. And I, in fact, I was going to ask you about that. Cause again, Mitch, I... Mitch, this is your question to answer. Is that in any way contradictory in your mind? Yes and no. And, uh, and I'll give you this answer. Uh, at some point, um, you sort of have to give the fans what they want. And fans have been clamoring for that song for what? When did it come out? 83? So it's been 35 years of people saying, play that song live. And they said, no, no, no. And finally they said, huh, okay. Um, well, they, wait, wait a second, Mitch. They don't play Babe. They don't play Don't Let It End. They don't play Show Me The Way. True. Those are all top 10, top five hits. Okay, and what what is the number one thing you think Sticks fans want, Mitch? What's the number one thing they want, Mitch? I would direct you to uh, the Rolling Stone article a few years ago, right? From from Andy Green. Yeah. Said what Sticks want, what Sticks fans want overwhelmingly is what? Uh, well, Dennis DeYoung back in the band. Well, is that a was that a question or or, or a declarative <laughs> declarative statement? Okay, you know that. Yes. That's what they want. But they've ignored that request and the request for all the hits for 20 years. The only reason they're playing it now, Mitch, is because the promoters have demanded it. Do promoters actually have that much sway? And, and I mean, listen, uh, like I said, I saw them on July 3rd, and I saw them perform it. Yes, they do. To answer your question, they yes, do. they do. Because they have, they have, there are no secrets in this business. The same promoters that hire me, hire them. And I hear what they say. And I hear what their complaints are. So okay. the answer to your question is unequivocally, yes, they do have sway. Because they're the ones that put up the money and take the risk to give you the money to play in their town. They do. That's right. And this, I know that was said that people at the T-shirt stand were requesting rebuttal. Mitch, don't make me laugh. So, so what is your? I mean, I know you went to Facebook and and you 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 put out your comments about uh, them playing it again. But have I been silent for twenty years about it? Um, I just said, hey, people like the song. You they, know how I know? You know how I know? I play it. Yeah, I can play it in front of ten thousand strangers. You know, I play these um, a lot of these festivals, which I call you know. A corn dog, a carousel, cotton candy, and a classic rock band, the Four C's. And people love Mr. Roboto. Nobody boos it. They love it. <clears throat> so that's how I know people like it. Well, then, so, so let's look back then at the time. Now, you said that, that Tommy was going through some alcohol and, and, and drug problems, which, to be fair, every rock star was going through back in the day. Not um, me. Not, not you. me. Not you, not, not not Gene Simmons, not Dee Schneider, but... Yeah, not James Young. Right, true. Uh, why was the song so divisive then? I mean, it, it's, it's... It wasn't. The... I've just told you, Tommy Shaw's... La Did you read his latest quote about the song? That I have not. Well, in fact, I, I, I read uh, Lawrence Gowan saying that the discussion to play it came up about five years ago. No, 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 no. 
Tommy said, now, now, now he says he always really liked the song. Quote, now, you know what I would tell you about that, Mitch? Right. Finally, the truth. Tommy loved the song. So did J.Y. We had a blast doing it. We didn't know what it was we were doing. Okay. I didn't, we didn't even think it was a single when we were doing it. It was a transition piece from the movie to the first, uh, the first song in, 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 in the concert. It wasn't, um, it wasn't flagged as a single. We loved it. We were doing something new and something innovative. Tommy said it recently. He always liked the song. He did. Did you hear what I just said to you, Mitch? I did. And, As, and, and I missed that quote, but... Uh, should I point... I can send it to you. I will get... Absolutely. I'll send you my email. What do you think of that? Well, um, I find that interesting because when... In what, in what way is that interesting? Well, just in the sense that it, so much has been made about the refusal to play it for so many years. Why? That's a good question. Um, can, probably, I give you an can I give you an answer? Absolutely. Okay. You know the tragedy of this? When they replaced me and started out telling the fan base that I had passed the baton to Tommy and I was retiring from the road, it was a lie. And when I finally spoke up and the fan base got wind of it, it divided the fan base in half. So when they did the behind the music episode, a bad story, an unflattering story would be our colleague has become ill and we don't think he's going to tour anymore. So we're replacing him. Even though he's asked for some time to get better. That's a lousy story. A good story is everything you never liked about sticks, focusing primarily on Kilroy and Mr. Roboto, is um, what broke the band up and hurt the band. Remember what I said, uh, Mitch, and I hate this to sound like I'm, I, I'm being a school marm. <laughs> no Tommy, worries. J.Y., and when Tommy quit, J.Y. and John and Chuck were furious and wanted me to replace him. They didn't say, ooh, Mr. Roboto ruined us. J.Y. and I went and made an album without Tommy in 1990 with The Edge of the Century, and we had very successful tours in 96 and 97. Are you following this? I am indeed. And that is the truth, a truth which I have been reluctant to tell for all these years. That's it. But I have mentioned it in the past. Tommy quits. He don't quit. We get to take advantage of the MTV, gener MTV generation, which was happening. Sticks never got, not a, didn't get a piece of that. Now you could blame me. I'm responsible because I didn't replace Tommy. And Sticks would have been a, di a different entity had I acquiesced to the wishes of uh, John Chuck and J.Y. I just didn't feel it was right, Mitch. Is what that you, well? I'm just wondering: is that a decision that you regret at this point? Because at some point, you have to admit that brand is bigger than band, and replacing players has been done for 50 years with all kinds of bands, including the Rolling Stones, and including Deep Purple, and including Journey. And 
Some band members are more important than others. It's a fact and a tragedy of life because we all like to be equal, but we are not equal. And, of course, we replaced J.C. It happened. He quit. And, of course, John had to replace because of his health issues. But is there a Rolling Stone without Mick Jagger? No. Or Keith Richards? There oh, hell is. no. <laughs> hell no. <laughs> no, 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 no. Not okay. at all. Okay. Some parts, you know what I mean? So You so, may be able to drive a car on a flat tire, but don't take the transmission out. So, so what I'm hearing, though, from you, though, is a great appreciation for Tommy Shaw. You are... When have I not said that? I've said it over and over again. Right. In every interview, show me one interview when I don't sing his praises. Mitch, you can't find it, can you? No, you can't. So, so, so why can't, why Mitch, can't he... And one more time. Have they been reciprocal? No, of course not. Why? Well, you know, when you, when you move on without a member, you have why? to... Well, you have to you have to reassert the brand. You have to say what no, we're selling. No, no, no. Come on, talking like a businessman. True, but that's what they're doing. They're saying this is what this is what sticks is now, and this is what we're selling you. And anything before was not this. I mean, that's sort of what they're doing. How's that worked out for them? Let me ask you a question. I can tell you, I have the numbers. If you want to know, you know, not counting package tours. Which, which are a, a, a misleading thing. Hard ticket, when you go into a market and you put a ticket on for you by yourself, this is always the arbiter of who you are. So what I'm saying to you, you're making this into a business discussion. Right. This is about the magic that comes between the right people when they come together and make music. If you want to look at it as a brand, that's your, that, 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 that's your choice. You say the word brand to me, you know what I throw up in my mouth. Yeah, I don't I mean, want to hear. I no, no, I don't want to hear that. I want to hear who's making the magic. Well, you see, and I do agree with the magic thing because I'm this one of these diehard Kiss fans, and it doesn't matter how long Ace Frehley's been out of the band, I need to have him there for it to be the right sound. And uh, I think the same is very, very true with you, uh, JY, and and Tommy. But, okay, all right, stop right there. Right. And I feel like I'm defending my, I feel like Albert, Albert Brooks here. I'm defending my life. Mitch, you just said what I said to you. Sure. I know you're, you're becoming the devil's advocate. And you're taking the other side, which is fine by me. Well, I'm not taking the other side. I'm just looking at it from, from the branding perspective, because th there oh, is that. Oh, again, oh, my, oh, my, my heart. <laughs> You're going to end up hating me by the time we're done, which is not... Stop doing that. You, I don't want right. you to treat me like a brand. We True. were never a brand. We were five jerks, right? Standing in the same room, sorting out our musical differences, with, which exist in every band, and trying to make magic. That's what we were. Just kids that played in our, our bedrooms and had dreams, Right. That's how we were. Of course. And, 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 and to use the name brand, that's, you know what I mean? That, that sounds well, like. It's perverse. It is perverse because, you know, I, I don't deny. I don't deny that 
you're correct in saying that matters. You are absolutely correct. Because I, I would ask you if it was James Young, and let's say Tommy Shaw and James Young playing the music of Sticks versus Dennis DeYoung and the music of Sticks, that's an equal playing field. But if sure. you say the word, you just put the, the logo up there, that implies something historical to human beings. So I get it. But I just hate the thought of it. True, but it, it is an unfortunate reality, though, in, in the marketplace that it's come down to that. I mean, I would love to see Sticks and, and Kiss go out on a package tour next year and have you and Ace Fraley involved. That would be that would be the ultimate package, and that would sell. Uh, Mitch, you know what you just said? You just admitted to me. Yes. That the fans not only want to hear Mr. Roboto, Mitch wants to see Dennis DeYoung up there. Oh, and I never, and I, and I never would say otherwise. Now, and and I have to be in full disclosure. I'm actually friends with Larry Gowan. We 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 text each other. I love Larry, and as a Canadian, I think he's he's a great great talent, criminal mind, and all that stuff. I mean, that was my much music high school days. Um, but there's something about chemistry and original members that that you just it, it you can't replace it, right? You listen. Larry is a nice guy. Absolutely, he's fabulous. He's a nice guy. He's handled an, an ugly situation. I mean, I, you know the crap that he takes? It's, it's, hey, but he volunteered, baby. He's singing for his supper. It's a gig. That's what he's, he's not in sticks. He's not in sticks. He's a hired gun. Sticks is Tommy and JY. He doesn't own the name. He's not part of that. He's just the guy playing in the band. So, <clears throat> Larry is just trying to have a job, you know, but the thing is, you know, listen to me sing, Mitch, you have listen yes, to me play grand illusion, pieces of eight paradise theater. Kilroy was here. Those conceptual albums came from me, but you've said it. You said the words you needed to say. Of course you want Ace back in the band. Of course. And Sticks want me. Sticks fans want me. It's Tommy and Jay, that, Jay White. They don't want that. They've made it clear. And so all I can say is, they're playing Roboto again, admitting the obvious. People have always liked it. There was there a section, a part, a part, part of the Sticks audience that did not understand the change. And I, yes, did they, and they didn't like it. Yes, but we still. The album was double platinum. Okay, it had two hit singles off of it. If Tommy Shaw doesn't quit, we dust ourselves off and come right back. Uh, you are you a fan of Rush? Of course, I'm Canadian. You have to be a fan of it's. It's part of um, uh, in the it's, Constitution. It's, it's in the Constitution. You have to like Rush, Triumph, and Honeymoon Suite. It's just that's okay. just the way it is. So the the thing of it is, Rush experimented and turned their fans off at one point. You remember it. Yes. Right? Yes. And they came back and made another album. Therein was the problem with us. It went away for, well, six, a long time. And um, it wasn't the other four guys that wanted that. The other four guys wanted to go back in and make a new record and say, okay, Dennis had this idea. It didn't work exactly the way we would have hoped it would. What's next? Do you do you think things would be very different today if 
1985, there had been a brand new Styx record and just said, all right, we, we threw Kilroy out there, which, by the way, Kilroy is the last platinum album, uh, studio album for the band. Double um, platinum. Double platinum. Double platinum. Double platinum. Do you think history would be very different if by 1985, with or without Tommy, you had put out another album? Without Tommy, I think the... Um, I, it was, that's a question I can't answer regarding who took Tommy's place. I mean, I don't... Give me a name. I mean, if you said Robert Plant, okay, we got a chance. You see what I'm saying to you? But if, if we had to try to rebuild what we had just built, <clears throat> there would have been blowback. And it wouldn't have been nice. Going forward with Tommy, yes, we would have made a good album. I had Desert Moon and Doing for Heroes, two songs that in Styx's hands would have been terrific. And we would have sat down and figured out what we were going to do because we always had. And the answer is yes. Would it have been the grand illusion? Probably can't not. answer that. Right. So, so, so then, when you got to edge of the uh, of the century, and you bring in Glenn Burtnick, and, and we know that he's doing, uh, you know, coming of age, uh, damn Yankees. Sorry. Um, was that a tough decision to to go ahead, or did you say, all right, he's off doing damn Yankees. There's not a chance he's coming back, and we need to be a band. Was that a tough decision? Yeah. Um, I st- we had started talking about it because Tommy was acting like he was interested. And so JY and, I, JY and I were talking and John and I were talking. And when Tommy made that decision, I thought it's time to put up or shut up on this thing. So we, um, we started looking for somebody. Uh, here's, here's, a, here's a little tidbit for you. Are you ready? Are you sitting down, Mitch? I hope you are. Um, I, I talked to Brian Setzer. He wanted to be in the band. Ooh, that, would been, that would have been fantastic. Okay. And so that was in 91. And J.Y. had gotten see these, uh, he, he'd heard uh, Glenn's, um, uh, uh, <clears throat> Glenn's album and um, he'd heard some demo tapes that Glenn had done. And he brought it to me and I thought the, the songwriting was good because, you know, you need songwriters. Tommy's a songwriter. It's about songs, Mitch. It's not about, oh, look at me. I'm a rock guy. Who cares? You got a song? There's been far too many rock albums made that are just boring, mundane, repetitive, unimaginative, but they rock, right? Oh, I agree with that. Okay. But if you're you're doing rock, see, you're on ladder five of the 10-step ladder. Oh, he's rocking, so there's a credibility. But if you have to base it purely on songs, it's, it's, it's a higher ladder. You're on rung two. Well, songs give you a career. I don't give a shit about, oh, it rocks. Tell me if it's any good. <laughs> you know what I mean? Agreed. Give me a boat on the river, okay, over a mediocre rock song. I want songs because the Beatles taught me that's what counts. And that's so, what gives you a career. Brian Setzer, he wasn't that guy. Great guitar player, good front man, you know? He, he met the requirement that he was blonde. Just kidding. <laughs> well, you catch my drift? You catch my drift? Image counts. But but yeah, Brian well, Setzer, I mean, he wrote uh, Rock This Town and, and... Yeah, so, I mean, we needed songwriters. Okay. And so Burtnick got the gig. And and 
it didn't sort of pan out when you look at it, right? I mean, he, the album came out, it, it did what it did, and... It was a gold album and had a, t- um, it had a, a top three single. This isn't, this is, you know, this is not chopped liver. And you realize now we were one of few bands that had a hit in, in the 70s, 80s, and the 90s. That's what we got. But the record company, it was, of course, the year of the grunge. Got it? Oh, please don't remind me. Those were awful, awful years. It came in. God. Here's what happened, Mitch. We got a gold album and a hit single. And then we couldn't get re-signed by anybody. Now we, we, we did stick ourselves. We did make a mistake and stick ourselves right in the eye, of which I do regret. Regret. But it, here's the deal. Um, and it was a management faux pas. But no record company would sign this because grunge was it, baby. It was. It, it sucked the lifeblood out of everything. Did it not for almost five years? Didn't it? Grunge you know was. Who, it was you the know, worst thing to ever happen to the music industry. I don't care what people say about Nirvana. It was just this. this poor, I'll tell you. What I, oh. I'll tell you. You want me to say something about Nirvana? Boy, the mail I'm going to get on this. I've said it before. One great song with an even better video. True. And everything else, who cares? Give me Soundgarden or or Pearl Jam over them. No disrespect to Dave Grohl, who I think is a nice guy and a fine musician. But as far as Nirvana goes, look it, every once in a while. And you know what happened? The press got behind it 1,000%. It was the zeitgeist, baby. That, that teen spirit video was as brilliant as anything I've ever seen. That's true. But it killed Sticks and all the bands like us. And we couldn't get re-signed. And to, for me to proceed, we did the tour, and it was Okay, but it proved what I knew from the beginning. Sticks fans wanted Tommy. Did you hear me, Mitch? Oh, I heard. Sticks. They wanted Tommy. We still sell records because we're we're good songwriters. I'm involved, right? The players are involved. Um, it was gold. And then they said uh, no record deal. Well, the JY and myself and Glenn sat down invested money in doing a nine-song demo to try to get signed. Couldn't get signed. That's it. So, hmm. you know, what are you going to do? I'm not sure. But it kind of, it, You know what it did? It soured me. I just wrote a song that was, a, what the number three? You know how hard that is? Oh, my God. It's so hard. You don't sit out, You don't sit down and say, i got to write a number three or number one single. You sit down and you say to yourself, I'd like to write a good song, one I like. It's so hard. And then the music business says, you know, we, we don't have any use for you. <laughs> okay. Ouch. Yeah, the, the, the music business is, is somewhat unforgiving, and it, it, it speaks volumes to, to you and to Tommy and to JY and, and all those others, the Paul McCartneys and the Gene Simmons that have lasted so long because there's so many musicians that have come and have been around for a month and disappeared and yet you're you're approaching 50 years in the business at this point i mean you started when back in 70 the band formed in 70 70 right it was in 72 wow see there there has to be i mean the scorpions just did a a 50th anniversary tour there has to be a sticks 
50th anniversary tour that is going to include you because how how could they not i mean you you were there at the beginning and let me ask you this question and I, I don't know if you've ever been asked this but let's say there is a, a sticks 50th anniversary tour planned and they want to do a little bit like iron maiden and say listen we had these other guys in the band we're going to keep them you know you come back would you tour if Larry was on stage with you and, and somehow split it up or, or, you know, Foreigner's been doing that with Lou and, and Kelly, or would you be completely adverse to that? Well, they don't tour with Lou. Uh, no, they don't uh, tour, but he, he comes out and does some, some, some guest spots. But I'm playing, with, I'm playing with Lou Saturday. I'll ask him. Yeah. But well, here's the deal. <clears throat> Sticks want, Sticks fans want to see the four guys They'd love to have Chuck. I don't think Chuck is, you know, can't do them all. No. But, but he most, was there at the show most, I saw. Most particularly, they want to see the three guys. And everybody else is, you know, not as important. I like Tommy Thayer, but I'd love to see Ace back in the band. So let's be honest, right? Truth of the matter is simple. It's simple. People like what they like. You're not going to change their minds. Um... And this is not about personalities. It's about magic. Yep, that's the exact word I had in my head. It's all about magic. It's all about chemistry. And, and, and people throw that word out there as if it's, it, it doesn't mean anything. But there is, you know, the, the way the fingers hit a guitar and a voice. And it, it, there's something when those pieces come together by certain players. And it doesn't matter. Like you said, Mick Jagger. You the just six sometimes, harmony. Yep. Are not the same without me. I can agree. Mitch, you got ears. I do. Two of them. One on each side of your head, right? <laughs> That's right. I, you know, and, and look, I don't want to sound defensive, but you know, you said but like 75 times in this conversation. It, go back and listen to it. And here's the thing about but. All the words that precede it don't count. Only the words that follow it. So I, I knew in advance that Larry was your friend. Somebody told me that. And you know what? Once again, Larry just wants a job like me. But I think that my job is, is really to be in sticks. Short of that, I'm coming to the CNE this year, right? Yep. And I'm playing. They hired me. I, I'm going to tell you something. How in God's name, who a guy who never took his solo career seriously, never had any history as a solo artist on the road has been able over the last 20 years to develop into, I guess, a competitive. Um, Don't say it. I was going to say brand. Don't say it. No, now, but no, a competitive alternative to Tommy and JY. That doesn't even make sense to me, but it happened. Can I just call you on something you just said though? You said you didn't take your solo career seriously though. I mean, I met back in the days with Desert Moon. I never toured. Okay, gotcha. I never toured on that. I never toured ever. Never. I was waiting for Tommy. I'm making records to keep myself busy. And plus, they were, Mitch, they were playing me a shitload of money at the time. It was insane. But I only wanted to be in sticks. I looked at the, the, the music I wrote for my solo albums and think of what Tommy did. If we'd have come together, magic would have returned. Well, okay. So let me ask you about that then, the magic returns. Let's say the improbable happens and you get back together and obviously you do a tour, much like Guns N' Roses has done. 
is there an importance in making new music to to sort of put a, a an exclamation point to it? Because to get back on stage and do the hits is great, but that's one thing. To get back together and say we are able to write ten new great songs is very different. Would that be important to you to to get in and make new music and and have one final album, or is the satisfaction just getting up on stage? the Montreal, whatever, well, Forum doesn't exist, so the Bell Center, and play Mr. Roboto good enough? Well, I have, I have proposed publicly one last tour with me for the fans and nothing more. I, Larry can come back. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? One last thing, one last go around for the fans. No new music has to be involved. I'm making an album right now. It's going to be a good one. At least that's what all my hangers-on tell me, and I pay them handsomely to say that to me. Um, it's about reminding everyone what it was and conjure up those memories that people have cherished. I know this because they never stopped telling me. I'm going to go play two dates this weekend, and when I go there, people are going to thank me for coming to their city like I'm on a mission of mercy, for goodness sake. How lucky can you get... I I used to think that what I did was frivolous. I don't anymore. I provide, and so do my former bandmates, they provide an important service to human beings. Agreed. It's it's allow them to escape the horrors, the drudgery, and the mundane aspects of their life and recall what they believe are the greatest moments of their life. That's what I do. And you know what? It's important. Oh, I agree. Oh, oh I, I so agree. I mean, music, yes, it, it is an, an escapism from paying the taxes and dealing with your, your sick kids and the job and the boss, but it's also a celebration. It's celebratory. You remember that first time you did this and Styx was playing in the background or the first time you did that and Kiss was playing. So I open absolutely- my mouth and, note, and, and, and notes come out. And people are taken away to a place they want to go. Yep. Oh, yeah. I'm not going to dispute any of that. That is exactly why I listen to your music and all the music I listen to. It's, it's, it's comforting. It's, it's, it's rewarding. It's, it's life-affirming. I mean, I know that sounds a little facetious, but it's not. It's, 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 it's music. Oh, no. music is more life-affirming than a lot of them. We said important things, I think. I think we told people that there's hope. That was important to people hear that. Yes. When people think there isn't any, we told them there was. Yes. <laughs> I can't dispute that at all. And it's, it's nice. And, and, I, and I like the fact that bands like Kiss and Styx stuck to lyrical content that was life-affirming and, and, and about the good times and not like the, the grunge era, which, which was all about how everything is miserable and everybody's horrible. And ugh. <laughs> and that's why bands like, like, like Sticks and like You Solo. Are you and, ready for something that's going to cause everyone to go apoplectic? Apoplectic? Please. Are you oh, ready? Yes. The grunge scene smells like wet flannel. <laughs> yeah, it does. And, and... No, yeah. look. Hey, listen, there's one great song that came out of it, Black Hole Sun, and a number of others that were pretty good. 
but it did not deserve overwhelming everything else. And you know what broke the cycle? Can I tell you? You know who did it? Go ahead. Two people. Don't say Rick Ashley. David Letterman. Yes. And Hootie and the Blowfish. He got on the Hootie bandwagon. Hootie was the first thing to come out that was just back in the old mainstream guy. People like this music, right? And that album sold 75 trillion records because people were so tired of the negative. And, and by the way, I will put out, that is why I think if you look at, and again, we, we mentioned hard ticket sales, you look at the packages that, that are successful year after year, Def Leppard and Journey, White Snake and Foreigner, it, you notice there's not a lot of those 90s bands that have those kind of, you know, summer shed tours going on because nobody wants to go back to those times and hear about how miserable they were. Nobody. Nope. But they But they want to hear Pour Some Sugar on Me. They want to know what love is. <laughs> right? Yeah, everybody wants to know what love is. Right. You know, so, you know, um, Dennis, we, we have been at this for over an hour and 20 minutes. I could go on forever and always. Um, but I am looking forward. Now, unfortunately, I'm not in Toronto on August 17th. I have to be in Boston for an event. But I would love to... Uh, come check out that show in uh, Brampton if possible. That is going to be... Uh, so in Brampton, Canada, you have Dennis DeYoung, The Grand Illusion 40th Anniversary Album Tour that rolls in October 20th, 2018. And you are, of course, rolling on all through August, doing some shows with Night Ranger. You've got, of course, the show with Lou Graham coming up this weekend. It just... It, the machine keeps rolling. And I got to thank you for it because you bring good times to whatever city. And of course, I'm going to thank Kiss and Def Leppard and Journey and all those other bands too because they keep it going and they keep bringing back those that music that matters. And, uh, you know, thank you for well, that. Well, I thank you for the interview. Um, yeah. And if you want to if you want to come to Brampton, uh, you let me know. We, You know, I got a guy. I got it. <laughs> I got a guy. He knows where the tickets are and uh, you're in. That's how, you know, I'm going to, I'm actually going to do that. I'm absolutely going to come out and see that because it has been way, way, way too long. You haven't been here in three years. I was I, at Mass Hall. Where were you? Were you, were you, were you, were you drunk again, for Christ's sake? <laughs> well, one thing, I, I don't drink at all, but but no, I'm in Montreal sometimes getting out well, to... I, I haven't been there. For goodness sake, how many times have I played Montreal? What are you talking about? I know, but I haven't been recently. Well, fast and miss you. Um, you know, uh, good grief, played. Um, what, what's the name of that place? Uh, Des Arts. Yeah, 15. Sal Wilfred Peltier. Yeah, Paz yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, we'll 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 meet up and we'll, we'll get some poutine. <laughs> that sounds good. Uh, yeah, that sounds really good, actually. So uh, I will uh, I will have this interview up on July 16th. Next Monday is the next scheduled date for the show. And just absolutely thank you. And, and I like the give and take. That was that was uh, that was great. That was really great. Fantastic. Uh, Thanks for the opportunity, my friend. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. Rock Talk. And a big thank you to Dennis DeYoung for that uh, interview. Just absolutely fantastic to hear from him. Lots of great stuff to mull over. In fact, I'm suggesting that you have to listen to that interview at least two or three times to get a full, full appreciation of what was said. Uh, Keith, welcome back. And uh, thank you for uh, 
for being with me on the first part. We are now going to talk about your new bandmate, the one, the only James Kotak. He spent numerous, numerous years, of course, with the Scorpions. He is an original member of Kingdom Come. They are going to be doing this 30th anniversary, 30th, 30th anniversary album tour. Did I get that right? I got that right. Um, it was a little hard to get out, but we got it. Um, so talk to me a little bit about joining this band and and being with James and, and the other guys and going out and doing this Kingdom Come run through the, the U.S. in the fall. Thank you for having me, Mitch. It's, it's always a pleasure. And even Canadian tongues can get tied. No worries. So, uh, yeah, you know, as a vocalist, when you're going to go out and either sub in or become the new guy in a band that's, you know, been seen and is kind of iconic and especially that had a lot of video exposure. It's a big decision for me as a singer because the vocalist is hard to miss. And especially for the fans, you know, it's hard to miss that there's a different vocalist when people come out to see a band. So I'm really careful about picking and choosing what I'll do. And suffice it to say, you know, living in L.A. and being a guy that kind of most of the, let's say, 80s hair band kind of genre knows about, right. you know, I do get called to do this kind of thing. And for me, my basic philosophy as I've been getting middle-aged or whatever you want to call it, a little older, has been if I can't be me and just do my thing, and have it just fit in with the style of the band, then I really have to pass these days. So the Kingdom Come thing came about out of the blue uh, when James and I were talking probably close to a year ago. And, you know, I went and listened to the material and I thought about it. And I was like, man, this stuff really could be done in a way, I mean, I can sing this my way and it'll still sound authentic like it's supposed to sound and I can have a lot of fun with this stuff. Yep. And, and as also part of my due diligence, I said to myself, well, you guys really got to make sure that you want to do this because by and large, for me, I always tell this to bands um, and I'm sure everybody else feels the same way. If the original guys are alive and you can get together, get together, man, do it because, you know, there's only so much time and, but for whatever reason, you know, this is something that probably has to remain the way it is as far as, um, yeah. uh, Lenny doing his own thing and the band doing its own thing. And that's cool. They spent a lot of time working it out and, you know, James is going to talk about all that. And, um, you know, so I waited until they did their diligence and they were really sure some bunch of months went by like a half a year and we said, are you sure? Are you sure? Okay. And, uh, we said, okay, let's go for it, man. You guys, uh, you know, you got a month or more worth of dates in the fall. Let's try it out. Let's start it there. See how it goes. And we're either going to have a really big super win or we're going to have a whole bunch of angry fans going thumbs down. <laughs> yeah, but but I don't think you're going to have hang, hang, angry fans. I mean, your vocals are, you know, spot on. You you you've handled a whole bunch of great stuff over the years. I just don't see how this is going to fail. You know, 
Is it better to have all original members? Okay, but sometimes that's overrated. I mean, let's not forget that Rob Halford is not the original singer of Judas Priest, and nobody is going to argue that he should not be there. So, you know, sometimes you got to go with what, what works, and I think that you are going to work very, very well in Kingdom Come. And you'll hear in the interview I talked to uh, James about the possibility of new music down the line, and he is very, very open to that, and I'm hoping that you're open to that too, quite frankly. I'm hoping to, 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 to hear that you would want to lend your voice to a new Kingdom Come record. Well, absolutely. I mean, writing is my passion over singing over anything. So, yeah. Yeah. So before Anybody we give... wants to write some tunes, especially Kingdom Come, I'll, I'll show up. Yeah, you'll show up. So before we, we give away the entire interview, before you actually listen to it, here is the one, the only, drummer extraordinaire and longtime friend, the one, the only, James Kotak. We are speaking with longtime Scorpion drummer and currently Kingdom Come drummer, James Kotak. James, a great, great pleasure uh, to speak with you. We have done this many, many times, and this time we are talking specifically about your band, the rebooting of Kingdom Come. How exciting is that? Mitch, I'll tell you what, it's an honor to talk, talk, talk to you. I've known you for like 25 plus years, and this is like, I'm so excited. We're going to relaunch this thing. Late September, we start touring North America. And I'll tell you what, it's an exciting time. And uh, yeah, I had that touch Scorpions, and that was a wonderful 22-year run. But I'll tell you what, we got this, this Kingdom Come thing. I've been itching at this. We, we tried to re- launch it back in 2012, 13. It just didn't happen because my duties with Scorpions took over. And here we are now. We've got the original four, me, myself, Danny Stagg on guitar, Johnny B. Frank on bass, Rick Starr on guitar, me on drums, and then introducing Keith St. John, the vocalist who sang for Montrose, Lynch Mob, et cetera. He's, he's, and I'm so excited. It's going to be so awesome. Yeah, I can't wait. And in fact, Keith, uh, you might not know this, but back in 2013, when my wife's father passed away from prostate cancer, I put oh, together this. Yeah, so, yeah, and I put together this uh, Kiss tribute record for a hospice that raised over $35,000 for the local hospice. And Keith, along with Doug Aldrich and Burning Rain, uh, volunteered the track Calling Dr. Love. So so I've known Keith for, for many years, and I cannot do anything but wish him the best. When I was in a time of need... He was right there. Him and Doug were right there. They donated Calling Dr. Love to this CD called A World with Heroes. And so I have an incredible amount of respect. And so when I saw this new lineup of Kingdom Come come down, and, and we know that Lenny uh, isn't involved, and then I saw the name Keith St. John, I went, yeah, that's right. That right guy on. deserves... He deserves a spotlight. He deserves being in this band. He deserves people to know uh, who he is and what he does. So, so you know, for the lack of a better word, congratulations on picking him. Because I know from my own personal experience that he's an outstanding guy and has got a voice of an angel. So, well done. Well done. Well, thank you. Thank you, sir. And if we could backtrack, back in 1991, uh, after my Kingdom Come stint ended... I had a band called Wild Horses with Rick Steyer, who's guitar from Kingdom Come, 
And we auditioned maybe 60, 70 singers. I mean, you name it. And the Keith St. John kept coming to the top and I pushed for Keith and I wanted Keith, but Rick said, no, we went with a, a guy from Boston and it just didn't happen. But here we are again. And I've known Keith all these years and followed his career. And he's such a talent and such a great guy. And I'm, I apologize. And I'm sorry for your loss. Of yeah. your Father-in-law. Yeah. Father-in-law. And, um, but you know what? It, what goes around comes around and here we are. I mean, Keith has stepped up and we uh, did uh, like quite a few demos in the studio with Keith singing uh, Kingdom Come songs. And I'll tell you what, man, he nails it. He nailed it. It was like killer. And we're going to see what happens, man. We're getting ready to go on the road uh, starting September 27th. Yeah, I, I, I can't wait for that. So, all right, let, let's address, if you want, what you know, the white elephant in the room. Lenny's not there. Um, we're not going to pretend that that didn't happen. So so talk to me about that. It, from what I gather, he's just happy over there in Europe being Lenny and just doesn't want to do this whole rock and roll thing, or at least not at a scale where you're going around the world. Is that sort of it, sort of? Talk to me what happened and why why he's not involved. Well, you know what? Lenny is just kind of Lenny. Um, to know him is to love him, and I love him and uh, respect his wishes. Uh, we've gone back and forth over the last five, six years about this King Come reboot. But recently, back in November, December, I approached him, and I, I gave him everything on a silver platter, but he said, you know what? I just don't want to do it. He's just kind of done. He wants to retire He's uh, got his life, and uh, he's up in Hamburg, Germany, and he just doesn't want to deal with it. And I, I can understand that, and I respect that. So we, I've had this desire to do this for so long, and um, he knew that. He knew this going into it, that I wanted to do it, and, um, and I'm not going to let anything stop me. So I'm taking it out, Kingdom Come, it's my name, because it was my band too so we're out there and Lenny gave us our blessing and I, I really wish he was on board he's just not and it is what it is and you do what you have to do yeah. and that's it it's rock and roll man yeah and, and you know what I, I respect the band for going out because I think everybody has the right to earn a living making music and has a right to, to work yes. and at the same time yes. I respect Lenny for saying you know what I'm over yeah. fifty. I, I want to stay home and 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 you know be with the birds and the bees and the right. and, and the dogs and the cats and I, I don't want <laughs> exactly. and that's that's fine too. So so let's focus then on the band. So this tour is going to start, and do we just sort of do the first album as a thirtieth anniversary thing all the way through? Do we do we do both albums? Do we start introducing new music? Do, do you start bringing in a Scorpion song in the encore? Like, what do folks that buy a ticket? Man, thank you, Mitch, for asking. I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to play the entire first album in its entirety, but also we're going to include songs from the second album, Do You Like It? And then also what we thought we would do is add in some Montrose because me and Keith were both with Montrose. We're going to add in some, a little bit of this, and maybe a warrant song, and maybe a uh, 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 maybe a, 
uh, this song and that song and, and a little bit of everything to keep it interesting. I mean, we're going to play some Led Zeppelin. Are you kidding? Greta Van Fleet's killing it. And we want to include everything we, because we don't want to be a one-dimensional band like, oh, it's Kingdom Come, Kingdom Come, we're playing the first album. We want to include everything. We want to involve everybody and, and we want to make it interesting because face it or not, people's attention spans have gotten very short and we want to entertain everyone in an hour and 15 minutes. We want to provide you with 24, 28 songs. Maybe it's not the complete song, but you know what you're going to get? You're going to get a Walker Road extravaganza. You're going to get entertainment. And that's what we need to, to deliver. I know that uh, you and Rick were on Warren's Ultraphobic, and I heard you say we're going to do some Warren songs. So is there a chance that family, family picnic or, or crawl space might might work its way into a set well, list? It's not a family picnic, definitely a cherry pie, because you know what? That was part of my and Rick's past experience. I mean, we want to like just deliver a rock and roll show that everybody's excited about. That's not boring. We don't want to play just King Tom. We want to touch on, we, we, because everybody in the band, their legacy with Keith St. John or Rick and Steyer or James Kotak, we have so much to pick from and we will pull out Rocky like a hurricane. That's fun. That's rock and roll, you know, and that's cool. And, you know, we want to indulge everyone and we want to, salt and pepper everybody with everything you know and uh not just like you know just like okay right. we're playing king and common that's it we're playing everything man we're going to deliver and and be fun and spontaneous and do medleys and do everything so it's going to be very exciting oh i'm looking forward to that well then then if that's well, if that's you. what it, if we're going to get sort of the the buffet of music then uh Tell him to uh, resurrect that Kiss tribute song he did for me, calling Dr. Love, because his vocals, I'm going to have to send that to you, but his vocals on that, spectacular. I mean, just absolutely Exactly. See, something like that. We could do that. And you know what? One of the other most important things is that we come to Montreal, because Montreal is one of my favorite, favorite, favorite cities in the world. And I'm, I'm, we're, we're going to have to do a Canadian tour, but Montreal is on my by hit list and that's so wonderful yeah i'd love to see it and and i was i mentioned this to you before we started but sebastian bach just did a tour up here the entire month of june he played 16 canadian dates now that folks see, is a real Canadian rock and roll yes and that's I a canadian tour not this toronto <laughs> i know we, we, like with scorpions we we we've hit toronto or we hit calgary and that's it but i'll tell you what man we we need to do something like that, and that'll be fun if we get everything, get our ducks in the row. Yeah, that would be great. So so let's talk about this. Now, we, we've, we've talked in the past over the years in other interviews about the first Kingdom Come album and all that stuff, but let's look to the future for a second. Is this sort of, you know, we'll do this tour and that's it, and then we'll go back and doing our other projects, or do you really want to develop this and become... And I know people hate the word, but a brand that moves forward, making new music. You know, are we looking at 2020 and 2021? And is that a goal, or is it like, no, let's let's just do these two months on the road, say thank you, 
celebrated 30 years and off back back home. You know what, Mitch? I'm glad you asked that because for me, this is like something I wanted to reboot years ago, but Scorpions didn't end. What I would like to see happen is we, we do this to reboot it and we get it up and running at the end of September through October. And then we keep going and going. And I would like to do to tour on it. And I would like to create some new music, you know, or if necessary, some new, new singles, something. But I want it to continue on because I love rock and roll and I love Kingdom Come. And, you know, um, maybe Lenny will contribute some music towards it. Maybe he's not involved touring-wise. And I, I, I just want things to go forward. You know, I want things to be big. Uh, and because if the music isn't there, I'm not there, man, you know. And uh, yeah, I I've been offered so many situations. I've been offered so many situations to play with this one and that one and whatever and who this and that, whatever. And honestly, I just don't want to do it. I want to do what I want to do. I've worked my ass off for 35 years and I want to do what I want to do. I want to be creative and I want to be involved in what I want to do. And that's selfish. But however, I love rock and roll and I like good rock and roll and Keenan come to me is the best of the best. So we'll see what happens, man. Let's well, focus on that. I hope it happens. Now, since we're talking new music, there is up at pledgemusic.com right now, the new Kotak album. Um, yes. Talk to me about that. And how is that different for Kingdom Come? Why not sort of hold back on these songs and say, all right, let me put them out in 2019. Let's get Keith in the, in the right. studio and the guys. And, you know, What's sort of the hope for the Kotak album? And, and of course, I encourage everybody, head over to pledgemusic.com, look oh, up thank Kotak. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, yeah. Listen, I, I love people who do honestly, that. Honestly, well, thank you. But honestly, Kotak music is much different than Scorpions. It was always like kind of cheap trick meets Green Day on a bad day. It was like punk poppy. Now I'm more like hard rock, like Nickelback meets uh, whoever. Uh Meet Nickelback meets Scorpions. Um, so that's that. It's a different entity and uh, it's it's floundering. It's doing okay. But Kingdom Come is a totally different entity and it has nothing to do with Fledge Music. And, you know, we're doing right. our thing. We've been offered some really good deals from a Japanese label and from a German label. Kingdom Come is in a totally different mindset. So we'll see what happens with that. But uh, I mean, Kotak is one thing. It's like my passion project, if you want to call it that. And I'm, I really love playing rock and roll and I sing and play guitar in that band. But, you know, it's, it's a passion project. It, it doesn't always work, you know, and um, I'm very honest about it. So we're, we'll see what happens with that, man. We'll, we'll see what happens. But now. Right, now I'm focused, right now I'm focused on Kingdom Come, Kingdom Come, and then Kingdom Come. Which it's good because you need to be uh, singularly focused. Now, I want to ask you yes. about this story, and I'm yes. throw, I've, I've never mentioned this to you, but literally half an hour before I got on the phone with you tonight, I got a call from Rat drummer Bobby Blotzer, and, and we were talking, and I said, listen, I got to get off the phone. I have an interview with James. And he started telling me this story about how he and Tico Torres walked into a bar, and I believe it was Louisville, Kentucky, and he saw you play and he said, man, you, you're, 
you're the real deal. You need to move out to L.A. because you're a showman and you're too big for Louisville, Kentucky. Um, how, how do you remember that story? First of all, is that story or somewhat true, all true, not true at all? And what was that? What's your take on that story? Mitch, Mitch I got to I got to tell you. That story is 100% true. I was playing in, in Rick Starr's bar, Rick Starr the guitarist from Kingdom Come, and uh, Bon Jovi was opening for Rat and they came into the bar and they sat in with our band and Bobby Blotch was there and he goes, "Man, you're a really great drummer. You should move to LA." And this is 1984. And I go, "Yeah, man, well, I'll try to do that. And he helped me beyond, if it wasn't for Bobby Blotzer, I never would have moved to LA. About a year and a half later, he came back and they were headlining an arena and I went to the, to a meet and greet and I gave him my cassette tape of my band and it was Bobby Blotzer. He's like, oh dude, what are you still doing there? He gave me phone numbers of guys in LA to call so I could hook up. Wow. I've done these things calling. Hold on. And we are back with James Kotak. I know that you were telling me the story of Bobby Blotzer, and then you had to take a call, so we had to we had to go. But we are back, so let's let's resume our story. So Bobby Blotzer and Tico Torres of Bon Jovi walk into a bar. This sounds like a joke setup, by the way. Two men walk into a bar. I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, but for real, I mean, I was playing actually in Rick Steyer's bar. Right. Rick Steyer, the guitarist from Kingdom right. Come, in Louisville, Kentucky. And they came in. It was actually Bon Jovi was opening for Rat. That was right. like 1983. And uh, I'll tell you what, Bobby came up to me and said, "Man, what are you doing here? You should go move to LA and and you know be a metalhead." I'm like, "Going what?" So it took me a few years, and I saw him a couple of years later, and then I ended up moving to LA. And Bobby helped plant the seed for me. Bobby Blotzer was like my mentor and got me to move to LA and. Uh, he helped me when I got here, when I arrived, when I landed. And uh, he was the best of the best, man. He's still my friend to this day. And I love him to death. He really, really, really helped me. Okay, so, and, so um, but you were telling like me really before, before you had before before you had to take that call, you were telling me that he was he gave you a whole bunch of numbers to, to what? To agents, oh, yeah. to, to different bands, to No, 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 no. No, he gave me numbers to a couple of musicians here in LA. I don't want to say the names. Right. Uh, I ended up meeting them when I got here, and um, but he was like, "Oh, dude, you got to move to LA," because he goes, "You're a great drummer, man." And, and I'm like, "Oh, wow, thanks." And uh, it took me a couple of years, and I got my ass to LA, and I joined Kingdom Come, and the rest is history, you know. And now, uh, but Bobby Blotzer was the best of the best, and he will always be my mentor and my bestest friend, and uh, uh, he he was just the guy man dude man it's just like i don't know how to explain it he just helped me out in so many ways i can't describe and bobby blotzer will always be my mentor you know and uh, if it wasn't for him i wouldn't have joined kingdom come and then i would have joined uh scorpions and etc etc and um here we are well here we are and, and and that's such an amazing story because you know, if you say to me, Tico Torres and Bobby Blotzer walk into a, a bar in downtown Manhattan, <laughs> you know, that that's that's something you go, oh, well, they're in New York. Of course they're going to. No, I this mean, is Louisville. Right, exactly. Right. And that's and and the fact that 
you know, when you're on the road, you see a million guys in bars, you know, slugging it out, trying to get, a, you know, trying to get some rent money. But here you've got right. the guy in the in one of the great biggest bands because I mean eighty three round and round was as big of a single as you're going to get the, for that band. And, and Bon Jovi, Bon Jovi was opening for Rat. That's like, I know that's like crazy. It, isn't that amazing? Now, on the other side, since we mentioned Tico, have you kept in contact with Tico at all? Has has he helped out? Has you know what? Uh, I, I, I was actually in New York about uh, two years ago and third. Uh, and um, at our hotel, Tico and his girlfriend were staying, or wife, whatever, were staying at our hotel, and I uh, hooked up with him and met up with him, and we we had a we had a good hour conversation, and we talked and whatever, and uh, it was good. But I'm very tight with uh, Hugh McDonald, you know, the bass player from Bon Jovi. I, I love you. He's and... such a great guy and such a talent. He's played on every Bon Jovi record. Yep. And he's finally getting the recognition he deserves because he played on everything from day one. And I don't know what the deal is with them, but uh, it is what it is. But Hugh is such a wonderful guy. And um, I saw him uh, reading Rock Vault, and I've been friends with him. And um, he's just a wonderful guy. I mean, he, I am a talented, super talented bass player. I have been trying to interview you, McDonald, for the last decade, and and I do have a great you, McDonald story. And if you just give me a second, and yeah, I'll, I'll okay, you, let me hear. It. If you can just indulge me for two seconds, this was back of on course. the this was back on the Crush tour. So, I guess that was two thousand, two thousand one, and I don't know. They were playing Quebec City, and Quebec City is all French. And you I'm, say you say Quebec or Quebec. I say it the I American it say. Well, the, in French they say Quebec. Quebec. But I say Quebec because okay. uh, I'm anglophone. And because you're a rebel. Right, because I'm a rebel. Now this was the month of May, so it was a little <laughs> bit cold up there. But I had, you know, right? the the black <laughs> the black shorts on, and and I looked like a roadie, and and I showed up right. to the venue super early. I showed up at two thirty because it's, it's a four hour <laughs> drive, right? So I figured I'll, I'll drive in, right. I'll drive Ooh. in early, I'll eat lunch, and. But I get to the venue and I park and I see a, a security guard standing as they're loading in the drums and all and, and all the gear. And I said right. to him in English, I said, where's the bathroom? Right. And, and, you know, I looked uh. I looked like a roadie and he said, oh, down to the right. left. And I ended up in catering with the Bon Jovi guys. I'm like, oh, all right. Uh. So I, I, I stayed in that area the entire show. I got to watch Soundcheck, which. I probably wasn't allowed to. And then at the end of the show, because the security guards had seen me walking back and forth all night long with no pass of they any kind. You're part, you're, you're, you're part of the entourage. Think, thinking I'm part of the crew. They hustle me into this right. room at the end of the of the hallway. And they say, oh, the girls will be in soon. And I went, okay. What? <laughs> yeah, they said, no. oh, the girls will be in soon. So so I'm waiting in this room. And, and 30 girls walk in they look to be you know the stripper type and <laughs> tico torres walk in no walks way. in yes and richie sambora walks in and john bon jovi walks in and every single one of them walk right by me and shake my hand hey how's it going i guess they think oh, i'm the handlers <laughs> well i wasn't mitch well, back then no, I, well, no, I was. They, no they know you you're mitch lafon i mean <laughs> you're not like some stranger not in 2000 not not 18 years ago oh 
and and David Bryan walks in, and they all go and start talking to these girls. And you, McDonald, walks in, and he doesn't. He just walks right over to me and he goes, "So, what are you doing?" And I'm like, "Hey, you know." And we spent 45 minutes, 45 minutes talking, just him and me, about whatever. And hey, the show was great tonight, and all this stuff. Right. And all, all the guys are talking to the girls, and, and they all leave. And ever since then, I just I've always wanted to interview him because I just I just would like to have that you? conversation. You you? Yes. You want to interview who? You. I want to have that conversation he's so on tape. I mean, he's my friend. Yeah. Well, you're gonna have to hook that up because I was I think that he's so interesting. His whole thing about. He's been in Bon Jovi for all these years. He played on freaking Runaway back in 80, whatever that was, three or four. He played, no, he played on everything. On everything. I know. I'm phone, sorry. And, and I would love no, to have. No, he played on everything. I know. I know. Every single album. I, I would just love to have that conversation from Quebec City on tape for my listeners to listen to because it was such an incredible conversation and it was just such a surreal moment being in this room with all these ladies shaking hands with Richie Sambora and John Bon Jovi. <laughs> and all I had done was say to some guy, where's the bathroom? And they went, oh, <laughs> that was it. So, yeah, so the key to security in Quebec City, apparently you don't need an all-access an all pass. All you need to do <laughs> is only speak English and they will send you to the band dressing room, which was the great – anyway – Thank you for indulging that story, but that that's that's my brush oh, with like greatness. <laughs> it's my brush that's with greatness. That's so funny. I know. It, I like it. It's, like it's it, a great brother. story. Now, uh, we've done half an hour here, so why don't we leave it at that for today? Oh. And I want to, at, okay. at some point, get an interview where we're talking about the new album and the new music and and the, the tour that you're going to be on opening up for xyz band you know i just i wish you nothing but the best and and i'm glad to see well mitch yeah this this is why i i wanted to talk to you first because you have a way of taking boring things down to the to the to the simplest and most normal version of what's really going on with rock and roll because you've experienced it you're smart you're intelligent. You've been doing this for 30 years and you know what to say and what not to say. And it makes me so happy that I'm able to just be comfortable sitting in my underwear here and just on my bed and talk to you. And that makes me so outrageously happy. And I thank you so much. Yeah. And I, and I thank you for all, all the good times over the years, all the great interviews and all the, you know, the times you've had me out at Scorpion shows and all that, just immensely grateful and, and especially grateful. Well, I'm just a guy, man. I'm yeah. just, I'm just guy, please rock and roll drums, man. And, uh, uh, I, I, I just really am grateful that I'm friends with a guy like you and you understand what it's like, almost like you walk in my shoes that I'm not, I'm just not some egotistical rock and roll star who's trying to like impress somebody, you know how to take it down to the basics. And I really, really, really appreciate that. Yeah, you're very welcome. And, and, and again, congratulations on getting Keith in there. Yes. I know uh, Lenny would have been the perfect reunion, but that's not going to happen. Yeah. And Keith is, no, it's not. 
excellent. He honestly, if, if fans haven't heard of him, go check out uh, Burning Rain. Go check out that Kiss yeah. tribute track. I Montrose. talked to Montrosta. He has got a voice, and he will do these songs justice. And I'm telling you, you will not be disappointed, fans, with a Kingdom Come show. Absolutely not. Well, thank you, Mitch, so much. And on that note, I'm going to say farewell. Uh, I yes, have sir. to get ready to go to a photo shoot. And, yes, dude, sir. it's been so excellent to talk to you. And uh, you are one of a kind, and you're a friend, and I really appreciate everything. Absolutely. Have a good time at that photo shoot. Send me a couple of those pictures, and let's yeah. do this again very, very soon. I will. Merci beaucoup, as we say up here. Thank you so much. Merci beaucoup. Merci beaucoup. Danke schön. Danke schön. Good luck. Yes. Auf Wiedersehen. Bye-bye. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. And a big thank you to James Kotak for that fabulous, fabulous interview. Keith, welcome back. And uh, we are going to finish. Good to be back. Good to be back. We're going to finish this episode with a quick interview with Cher Ross of the band Vixen. They have a new live album out called Live Fire. It is on Rat Pack Records. You can head over to Rat Pack Records. And that's P-A-K, so ratpackrecords.com, and check that out. And uh, wouldn't it be cool someday to to see Vixen and and Kingdom come do a couple of shows together, maybe at the M3 Festival or something, and share a bill with the – you know, with Janet and Roxy and Cher. I mean, they're they're a great – Yes, that would be fabulous. Share a bill with Cher. Yeah. Very good, Mitch. Uh, Yeah, man, maybe we could sing a song together. That would be really cool. How cool would it be to – get out there and rock with Cher and do Edge of a Broken Heart. Yeah, wouldn't it, though? I mean, I think that would be fantastic. So so there you go. So this episode has been long enough as is, so we'll we'll cut the talk up short and we'll get right over to Cher Ross of Vixen. New album is Live Fire, available now. Here is the one, the only, Cher Ross. We are speaking with Cher Ross of the band Vixen. The new album is Live Fire, which is uh, fantastic, by the way, I have to say. Pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. Pleasure to be here, Mitch. Thanks so much for reaching out. Yeah, absolutely. So, you you know, Vixen is one of those, I don't want to call it guilty pleasure because that almost sounds insulting, but it's one of those bands that you just just have to love because the music's always been fun. And and uh, it just puts you in a good mood, you know. You hear you hear "Edge of a Broken Heart" and you go, "Yeah, okay." Roll down the windows. It's summertime. You're good to go, right? I mean, that that's what the band is to me. Just sort of this fun rock band, and and uh, it's good to hear this live. So, so let's talk about this live thing. It is mixed by Michael Wagner, um, which is probably not a good introduction. It is mixed by the venerable, you know, pro Michael Wagner. Talk to me about this live album to start. Yeah, definitely. Uh, the The whole idea has always been that people used to come and see us live, you know, back in the 80s, and they would just be like, oh, my gosh, your energy is so, like, amazing live, and blah, blah, blah. And then, of course, you do a studio album, and you're going for this perfect take. So we really wanted to put something out that captured our live energy, which I think is also very powerful. So there was a there was a definite reason behind doing that. It's sort of, it's like one of those things that's long overdue. In terms of me up here in Montreal and in Canada, the band hasn't been up here really in the last little bit. What are sort of the touring plans look like for, for getting you up here? Um, you know, I hope it happens because uh, we need to do that. We definitely need to come up there. Um, I, 
I don't know why we haven't been up to Montreal. I don't know. We need to. Let's look back at, at some of the history of the band. There, there was a time in the early 2000s where you weren't part of Vixen and, you know, uh, the guitarist went off and, and took the name. Uh, talk to me about stepping away and then realizing that, yeah, this, this is where I belong and coming back to the band. Um, I think, you know, music is always a bit of a journey for the people in the band. And, you know, in the, in the time when there was versions of Vixen that were out there, uh, I was on my own musical journey doing things with my husband, Bam. We, you know, we had Bubble for a long time. And so we were doing that. And that was what was true for me. And, um, and it still is, I mean, you know, it's just, it's just, it's a different era now. And it sort of came or back around, um, after the band's reunited thing on VH1, mm-hmm. that was a little bit instrumental in, you know, a lot of, um, appreciation, just yeah. a lot of appreciation. And that opened up the doors of communication and eventually the timing was right. And we all started talking about it again. And, uh, you know, we all still pursue our side stuff. You know, Janet's got her solo thing and Roxy's got Madame X and I have, now I have twin flames radio with my husband. So we're all still doing those things, but it's like, we realize that Vixen is this, it's just this thing that we have Mm -hmm. that, um, we just love each other and it's a journey that we've been through together. So yeah, here we are. I never would have thought it. I'm just like so excited. I never would have thought it. And I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, it really is. So so talk to me about that with all these side projects. You, you did one that I really loved back in the day called Contraband, which which was fan. And we'll get about we'll talk about that in a second. But sure. is is Vixen just this sort of weekend warrior band where you sort you sort of drop in and do these shows and then fly home? and then focus on the other projects? Or at some point, do you have to sort of, as a band, say, you know what, we need to focus on Vixen and stop the other stuff and make it our main priority? I think we would love to make it our main priority. Right now, it is a weekend thing, only because it doesn't sustain us. There's just not, um, you know, everybody's got lives and jobs and stuff. So... It isn't like it was back in 1987. Like, yeah, let's just go off and tour all the time. It's like we we actually can't do that. So if it ever came up, that would be a definite consideration. Absolutely. So, so right now we are doing a lot of weekend shows and we try to do more where we can. Um, but it's not because the, the focus is on other stuff. It's just pure economics and it's 2018. The music business is so different. People don't, you know, buy records like they used to. So it's just a different animal. That's all. Do you think at some point, though, you want to get into a studio and make a new album? Because there was one that was out in 2006 that was obviously a very different lineup, not including you. Uh, Tangerine going back to 98. uh, 20 years, actually, by the way, celebrating (laughs) this year. Right. Right. 20 years of Tangerine. But but is it important at some point to say we need to get in there just for the creative exercise of it and say we need to get some thoughts on paper we need to say this is vixen 2018 and these are the songs we have is is that important to you and important to the band it's very important to us we have been throwing ideas around via the internet and figuring out you know what it's going to sound like what the direction is going to be like all that kind of stuff so that is definitely definitely in the cards 
And at this point, it's just a question of geographically making it happen and finding a way to do that. Hopefully, I don't want to pin him to it, but hopefully it would be with Michael Wagner as well, because we really loved working with him. And, I, and I'd like to say that he enjoyed working with us as well. So that's the plan as to when and how logistically we'll make that happen. I don't know, but I know that we will. I know that we will. Absolutely. You absolutely and it's because have. we need to. You know, you we, just, we have to do it. You know, we just really have to do it. You really do. And so, so just speaking sort of off, you know, in theory, I guess is the, is the word I'm looking for. If you do make an album and it does come out, do you look back to Rev It Up and the first album and say, we need to capture songs like that? Or is there a certain freedom now that says, you know what, it's 2018. If we want to do pop, we'll do pop. If we want to do disco, we'll do disco. If we want to do heavy metal. I mean, I mean, do you have to stay within a box and say this is the Vixen sound or do you have a certain freedom where you can go musically? Well, I think there's a certain freedom production wise. Um, but as for me as a fan, you know, when I go see a band, whether it's, you know, the Rolling Stones or Aerosmith, I want to hear those hits. You know, I go see Def Leppard. I want to hear the hits. And when they play new material, if it sounds totally different to those songs that I know them for, I'm a little bit like, huh, what happened? Who is this? So I sort of come at it like a fan. And I think that's sort of the idea is we call it like, you know, the nostalgic vixen. We want to sort of stay true to that. However, I do think that there's a lot of freedom with production and things that we can do in the studio and how it would sound overall. You know, there, there's, there was a certain sound in the 80s. And what we do going forward, it's, it's not going to sound like that. It's going to have a different, more modern sound. And I think that will definitely change it up for sure. Uh, but who knows? You know, I don't think we'll be going in a disco direction, but uh, you Come never on. know what, what could happen. You never yeah. know what could happen. We get in the studio and crazy stuff happens. So It, it could be like a modern day ABBA in, in a sense, but okay. Oh my God, that's funny. Now, I, I don't foresee that, but... Um, but we do, you know, we have a lot of respect for each other musically and writing wise. And um, it's just, there's just, there's a lot of influences at play that put into the mix. But I think that there is definitely a sound of Vixen that happens when you just get us in a room. And it's just sort of, you can't get away from it. You know, we start putting on layers of harmonies and then boom, you know, we, we just sound like Vixen right away. Right, like Vixen. So so this one band that you didn't sound like Vixen was Contraband. And I remember specifically walking into a record store and seeing the cover and then seeing the LA Guns logo and the Vixen logo. And I went, well, what the hell's this? Flipped it over and I saw who was on. I went, okay, immediate buy. And I did. Um, and I talked to Bobby Blotzer probably once a week to this, to this day on the phone. Oh, my God. Yeah, <laughs> right? I happen to be friends with, with, with Bobby, and he texts me, and we write all the time. And yeah. he That's has told cool. me some incredible stories about the singer and what happened. And so, on. But from your perspective, um, talk to me about putting this band together and getting in, in contraband. How was it sold to you? Was it just, it's a one-off, and we're doing a couple of shows and see you later? Or was there a real sense of, this group's going to be a super group and you're going to make five albums and you're going to tour the world. Um, going into the project, what was it like for you? Well, going into it, it was just, in my mind, it was a one-off. It was, we're going to do an album. Maybe we'll do a couple of shows, probably not. And it was just about having fun. And it was, you know, obviously it was to launch our collective manager's record label. So 
he had picked members of each band that he managed. And, uh, you know, for me as the bass player, you know, it was just really fun to play with those guys. I mean, I've always been up for, for whatever. So that was, that was a laugh. It was fun. Um, but I didn't want to put any, um, I didn't want to have any sort of like weird feelings with, with Vixen. So that was definitely like contraband was not like my priority. I wasn't going like, Oh wow. A super group. Awesome. I'm, I'm launched. That was not my thinking. <laughs> you know, It was just like a, a one-time thing. It was fun. It was really fun. It was really fun. And, and in terms of, of what happened with, well, okay, let, let me just, and I won't stay on it too long, but working with Michael Schenker, <laughs> Yeah. What was that like for you? Because I mean, at the time, and 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 I don't. This is not disrespectful, but you were sort of a rookie to the music business at at that time. So was Tracy, quite frankly. Um, uh, what was it like to sort of be there with Michael Schenker with everything he brought from UFO for Scorpions and just like, oh, okay. Um, does he teach you anything? Was he was he difficult to work with? Was he great to work with? Uh, just talk to me about working with Schenker, especially at that time. Sure. Um, he was great to work with. We ended up being um, friends and I saw him a couple of years ago over in Europe uh, and, you know, like, oh, my God, we hadn't seen each other in a long time. So, yeah, he and I hung out quite a bit during the, that album and then the promotional tours. He and I were doing a lot of promotional stuff together. Um, I think I think we got along really well musically. So that was sort of the basis of you know, that, that language of like, Oh, okay, you can do that. Oh, well watch this. I can do this. Oh, we'll watch this. I can do this. We kind of had that with bass and guitar. So we had a lot of fun with that. And, um, that just sort of became the basis of, you know, that respect that you have with other players when you, you realize like, okay, I'm in the room with a player. And fortunately, um, it was, it was all good. It was great. He was not difficult at all. He was, um, quite funny. And we had, we had a lot of laughs and he would, he told me, you know, all sorts of crazy stories of things that he had done in the past and stuff. And he would just, you know, sure, let me explain to you what happened, blah, blah, blah. You know, and he would tell me this stuff. It was great. It was definitely great. The first album, the, or not the first album, but the, uh, the big single, Edge of a Broken Heart, obviously written by Richard Marks, who has gone out and uh, performed it himself. Were you involved at all in the writing process with Richard? I mean, in, in, and by you, I mean the band. Was the band brought in and was there a writing session or was the song simply submitted and it was like, okay, we need you to, to record this? Um, good question. It was like he came into our rehearsal studio and sang the guitar line and sang the melody and I came up with the bass line and we, we came up with all the parts on the spot. C. Waybill wrote the lyrics. And uh, the- so, yeah, it wasn't, it, what, there was no like recording that we were handed or anything like that. We we did it. Yeah, and it turned out. I mean, it, it really became sort of the signature song of the band, and it's so great. Um, let me move over here to to um, Janet. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, earlier this year, we she had an emergency situation after uh, you know she was a show out in L.A. and the next day, um, when you heard the news, talk to me a little bit about that and and what it was like hearing that and now moving forward how is she doing physically how is her health uh you know is that i mean obviously it's scary so so just talk to me a little bit about that news i remember turning on the websites and all the music and i I was like no 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 we can't have this it's wow you know it, it hits you yeah it definitely does hit you um it was shocking 
you know, when we, when we all got the news and everything, it was, you just can't believe that this is happening. And, um, just really grateful that she is so, um, strong and healthy. And yeah, she has a totally clean Bella health. She is doing absolutely fantastic. We don't have any, you know, concerns or worries or anything like that. And she's, uh, she's a survivor, you know, she, she, she is just doing great. So really, uh, just more appreciative than ever that we get to go up there and do this, you know, who knows, who knows how long we, any of us have really, but that was just a big reminder of that. So yeah, she's doing great. Knock on wood. Yeah. And, and, and talk to me in terms of a vocalist, because, you know, when you hear Edge of a Broken Heart and you hear some of the other songs, there really is something unique and special to her, to her voice and the way she does it. Uh, looking from the outside, not as a band member, but just as a fan looking at her as a singer. Um, talk to me about her voice and what she brings to the band and to music. Janet is one of those singers that she kind of ruined me because when, when I, when, you know, when it all like imploded in like 91, 92 or whatever, I just thought I could never sing lead because I've been in a band with Janet Gardner. I mean, she is a phenomenal singer and it really became, um, evident, you know, I mean, it's like, it's like, I, I, what am I trying to say? Okay. So like this year, um, right. we had to do a, you know, this whole show on the Monsters Rock cruise without her. And we didn't want to let the fans down. We wanted to make it really special. So we had all these dudes come in and sing. So we had, you know, Todd Latore from Queensryche and yep. Danny Vaughn from Taiketo. We had, we had all these guys, you know, Tammy from Faster Pussycat, um, all these cats, the, Terry from Great White, every single one of them heard the live, we sent them tracks from the live CD. And we said, here's what we sound like live. Here's the song you're doing. Da, 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 da. And they write back and go, holy shit, she's got an amazing set of pipes. Oh, my God. They were freaking out. Because it's one thing to just stand on the side of the stage and we watch each other all the time and we're all pals and everything. But when they actually had to perform and sing these songs, it's like they came back with like, oh, my God, are you kidding me? So, um we're not the only ones in this band who know how amazing of a singer she is. She is phenomenal. Um, I mean, in, in my opinion, not just as a band member, but I think Janet Garner is hands down the number one rock chick singer out there. If not just the number one rock singer. Yeah. That, uh, I, I, I won't disagree with that. She, she is fantastic. Yeah. I mean, she, she really is now. Phenomenal. So let's, let's look back here to 91. Uh, the band disbanded and the story's been told, so, so we'll, we'll skip ahead. Uh, but there were different reformations going through. Roxy tried something and Janet did something and, and Gina Stiles and this and that and Raina. And there were like 87 versions of the band sort of trying to... And you didn't take part in it until 2012 with a brief stint in 2004 with the um, uh, bands reunited. Yeah. Why were you holding out? Were you simply not invited did you say no? Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> I was always invited. Okay. Um, yeah. No, I was doing my own thing. I was playing guitar and singing, which I still do now. Um, and it just, you know, the timing was never right for me. There was one point after Bands Reunited where we could have done something, but uh, my parents' health, both of them, was failing. 
And I just was like, I don't, I'm not interested. It's like, I, family is more important to me. I just wanted to spend time with my family. So that was really my priority for a number of years. And, um, and then I guess it was 2011. I can't remember who called who first. It was actually before then. We started talking about reuniting in like 2008, 2009, I think. And uh, it just took a lot of phone calls to figure out what that was going to look like, really. And so, yeah. What was the major timing? And and before the reunion, because it it sort of got together going in 2012-ish, but you... What was the major sticking point? Was it just, I have my own life or were there some unleft financial business and con- contractual stuff that was sort of hanging over everybody's head or uh, what was sort of the, the, the main sticking point to just, Hey, you want to go play on Saturday? Sure. Um, you know, why wasn't it that easy? Well, we wanted to reunite with Jan and that's okay. what took a lot of phone calls. Gotcha. And when she finally came around, then it was literally like, I want to say three days before the press release was going to go out. We had written the press release. It was done. And she called up and said, you guys, I need to tell you something. I have cancer. And, uh, and I don't want you to tell anybody in the public about that. That And, and so yeah, go ahead. That put us in a weird, I mean, that was why we went out as JSRG. That was why we went out with Gina. That's why we never said anything about um, Jan's battle with cancer. And, uh, it, you know, it was, it was, people would get mad at us, uh, mad at her, sorry. And they'd be like, why isn't Jan doing this with you? Blah, 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 blah. And it's like, you just don't know what's going on with the band. That's all I ever want to say to somebody now. It's like, you don't know, you know, some people are a little private. They don't want to talk about stuff. I mean, I agree. Yeah. There's, there's a, there's a few bands out there that I'm aware of where fans are complaining and I know the band members personally, and I know that some are going through stuff and it's like, you know, sometimes you just leave it alone. Just they're doing what they can do. And, and you know, um, obviously the her passing was very, very devastating to, to both uh, us here in the media or me in the media and as a fan and for the band. Um, so, so so let's take a moment to remember her. What did she bring to the music scene with her presence, her guitar playing? Um what was it about her that just made her so unique and special? Uh, Jan was very interesting in the sense that everybody thought she was like super mysterious and kind of scary. And she was really tall and she had a lot of hair. And so when she walked into a room, there was a really big presence. And the funny thing is she and I were both from Minnesota, even though we didn't know each other there. And when, when you actually just got to know her, you know, quietly in a room one-on-one, you realize like, she is like the nicest person, the most not scary person ever, just down to earth, total Midwestern. Um, But she carried herself with a lot of strength. And I think that that same strength came into her playing and, you know, it showed on stage. And um, I think, you know, as for music, you know, she was a, she was a pioneer without trying to be one, you know, which is the best kind of pioneer there is. You're just, you're just doing what you want to do. Oh, yeah. Just, just you're just going to do it. And a complete shredder as well. So, but, but let me ask you this from your own personal point of view in 2006, when she put out the live and learn album under the Vixen banner with all kinds of new people on it, all kinds of, 
was that like, eh, it is what it is, or was that, what are you doing? I mean, was there a certain anger or upset or disappointment that she would use the name and have three other people on it? Yes. I was pissed. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I was pissed. Not because she used the name. I wasn't pissed about that. But I wanted it to sound more like Vixen from 1988, 89, whatever. So, you know, that's what I was more like, oh, really? Um, so, and I think um, it was just a weird time in our Vixen history. You know, we've all, you know, I talked through with her back then. And I know the singer from that lineup now as well. And she's really, really nice. Um, so it's not because, you know, that album is this bad or the other thing. I was just sort of like, if you're going to, if you're going to use the brand name at this stage of the game, it needs to represent, it needs to sound right. That, that's actually a very interesting comment. Cause I've never heard somebody say that who wasn't involved. And in, in fact, most people that have this happen to, and it happens all the time in rock, let's not kid ourselves. They'll say, oh, yeah. I didn't listen to it. I, I, I wouldn't listen to that. And so, so obviously. That's bullshit. Right. That's bullshit. But you Come hear on. it. You know you hear it, right? They say it all the time. Yeah, oh, I don't, of course. I haven't listened to a Kiss album since I left the band. Yes, you have. Shut up. <laughs> right? Yeah. That's um, complete bullshit. But that's interesting that you yeah. say that if they're going to do that and use the brand name, then, you know, if you're going to put a liquid in a bottle and you call it coke then at least make it coke in the bottle that that that's interesting i've never heard that so so it wasn't the brand name being used that upset you it was the musical direction it's like that ain't vixen what are you doing that, that's yeah wow okay I, yeah i, I like yeah. that I, I've, I mean I've, that, you know uh, you know like like you know i put out stuff under my own band you know that had nothing to do with Vixen and we would tell promoters don't even bill me as being a former member of Vixen because I don't want Vixen fans coming and being pissed off because we don't sound anything like Vixen. Right, right, right. I get, I get that. That's that. Anyway, that was, that was, that was a very interesting take. I've never heard somebody say that. And like I said before, <laughs> usually people say, I don't listen to them. Ah. Um, so let's, so we'll just get back That's here to lie. Yeah, of course, yeah. of course it is. Um, so live fire of course is out and, uh, we can so afford, excited. Yes. From Rat Pack records. And I, I would obviously yeah. recommend everybody check that out. Um, and of course you have, uh, just real quick new studio versions of you ought to know by now and edge of a broken heart. Just talk to me about quickly about recording those new versions. Well, um, you ought to know by now has never been released. It's never been on an album or anything. And we wanted to have a song that was sort of a, like a thread, you know, like a, more like a rope between us and Jan, something to bring us into the future. So that is that sound of Vixen from the, you know, the eighties. And it's a song that we used to play with Jan. So we wanted to have something like that. And that just felt really good to put that onto a record and to honor that legacy um, before we move forward with the studio album. And then the edge of a broken heart um, new version I don't even know how much to say about that. It's really, really, really different. Um, it is not just like, okay, let's play a Drew Broken Heart on acoustic guitar. It's done. Next. It's not like that. I don't know it, if I should be happy or scared. <laughs> you should be both. You should be both. Yeah. yeah. I played it for like a few people and, and their jaws just dropped. They're like, what? That sounds so cool. So yeah, it's really different. Cher, absolutely a great pleasure. And hopefully uh, we will see you somewhere in Canada soon. I hope so, Mitch. Thank you so much. And I hope we get to 
come up there and rock out in Canada. From the Westwood One Podcast Network.